we have a first, a review, and a bunch of news you don't want to miss this week on the Indie Ball Report podcast. We're back again this week, episode number 204 of the Indie Ball Report podcast. I'm Nick, he's Will, and we have a first on this show, which is to say we have a car cast this week. A car cast. That is true. That is true. I mean, I am, I, I am currently driving in the middle of the night from Boston after watching the Celtics lose. First time ever at TD Garden, watch them lose, and now driving back so I can call Oscar basketball. Uh, against the rival Stony Brook, but you know what? That's the grind, and uh, we're here to talk about indie ball. Yeah, I've, I forgot to mention the whole like thirty minutes we were talking before we started recording, which was how how the Celtics do, and the whole root cause of just kind of deciding, you know, going to go up to Boston. But hearing that they lost to what was it, the Pacers, right? And uh, no, the Phoenix. Oh, Fe- oh, okay. Well, see, that's a lot better than losing to Indiana. Yeah, Phoenix is a good team. I mean, they didn't play well. I, I mean, it's it's just it's just sad. it's just disappointing. I mean, I've watched the Celtics for like 15 years, and I've I've never been to a Celtics game in Boston before tonight. I was really fired up, and then they lost. It was it was tough, but you know what? It's still still a fun time, and I guess there's worse things than having uh, you know, your team as number as the the best team, the best record in all of the, in all the NBA. In fact, when I say that it could be worse, you could have Kyrie Irving request a trade on your team once again. The Celtics could be that team, but they're not, so it's okay. That I like to see the Nets are catching strays here. That's always good to see, and uh, yeah, I mean, all things considered, it could have been worse, and. You know, we're still finding a way to get this show done, too. So, I mean, that's a real positive when you think about it like that. That's right. And, uh, you know, if I crash, you guys will probably hear it. Exactly. It'll be great content. We could be have It would be fantastic content. But uh, in all fairness, I probably wouldn't upload to help you out with the insurance claim. <laughs> that's true. We don't want to give them some. We don't want to give the insurance companies ammo. Exactly. Like. That I could just ransom it on you. You're like, well, so how much is not releasing this episode worth to you? I know, exactly. But, yeah, I guess at that point, we should probably just dive into the news here and stop uh, rambling for a bit because we do have a lot of news. We have six pages worth of news and review to get through today, so hopefully it won't take more than 10 minutes a page and we'll be able to keep this reasonable on the timing. But who knows? And I guess we'll only find out as we go along here today. But uh, we get started in the Pioneer League and we start with the Rocky Mountain of Vibes, a team we haven't really talked about in quite some time here, mainly because the last time we really talked about them was saying their season got significantly better when they no longer had to work as a farm team for a uh, uh, LMB team. But now they funny have... Funny how that works. Yeah, you know, it's funny when you're able to go ahead and get players and try to win games that you start actually winning games. But in any case, they do have a new manager, and it's a guy that's, I say, fairly well-known to the indie ball scene and a guy that's fairly well-known in baseball as a whole, and that is former Major League pitcher Les Lancaster as the manager from now through the 2025 season. Uh, He was a former major leaguer from 87 to 93, various teams here, most notably with the Cubs, though, wound up pitching an indie ball from 96 to 01. He managed an indie ball for a decent amount of time there, 99 to 03. Yes, that overlaps 
with some of his playing career as well as uh, so a real player manager type and then 05 to 2010 as well that's through a variety of leagues some that you've heard of some that we haven't even heard of so you know there's, there's that and there is experience in the pioneer league with less as well he was the pitching coach with ogden last year ogden being one of the better teams although they went out in the first round i believe to grand junction if i'm not mistaken there so you know there's obviously a lot here there's a lot of interest here i'm gonna be very curious to see how uh how the vibes do in their first real season of being able to you know not really have to worry about a lot of I guess for lack of a better term, a lot of uh, outside factors when they could just focus on winning. Yeah, I know. I think that it, it's definitely a it's definitely a good thing that they're kind of out of that situation with that. Uh, I, I don't even remember the exact Mexican team, but I think that uh, out of the partnership where you're just you're just worried about winning games, yeah. uh, and it's. And, you know, uh, with a manager that has a lot of experience, uh, a lot of experience in indie ball, of course, the major league uh, playing experience is a plus. And, you know, granted, that was a long time ago. Uh, but I think that uh, there's a lot of indie ball experience and real indie ball experience, like from quite a long time ago. So, uh, yeah, it's quite it's it's a interesting hire. And I think that. You know, I think things are definitely trending up for for Rocky Mountain for sure, which is uh, which is really good to see, and uh, I, I think it's it's definitely a solid hire for them. I absolutely agree with that. And the team that they had with was, and if I'm not mistaken, I may have to fact check myself here next week, but um, Monclova Aceros, I believe, is what it was. And yes, hope, that was them. Yeah, I hope I got the the pronunciation right on that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely is trending upwards, and this is a solid hire, too. You get a guy that kind of knows how to captain the ship here. And I feel like, too, it kind of blends, like, the newer and original styles of managerial hires. I think we talked about this a little bit last week when we were mentioning, uh, who was it, Billings, when they hired their manager. I think it was Horton that they hired. And we yeah. said how... You know, last year they went ahead, they had, you had your Riggleman's, you had your Bobby Jenks, you had a handful of other really well-known guys. And now it seems like we're starting to regress back to lesser known guys, still baseball guys, but a mixture of younger guys and guys that have been around for a little bit, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it feels like Les is kind of like the perfect compromise there. He's the guy that knows indie ball. He's been around it for a while. Yeah, he may have been in and out of it over the last little bit doing various assignments and doing various things, but he was with an indie ball team in the Pioneer League as recently as last year via his pitching coach experience with Ogden. So he's also got the major league bit. He's got the indie ball bit. He seems like a pretty good guy to help navigate this landscape and really kind of take the vibes from where they currently sit. That's kind of like, I don't want to call them bottom tier team, but certainly not a, a real threat or contender in the Pioneer League and try and guide yeah. them on that upward trajectory. Because all that really takes, especially in a league like the Pioneer that uses the halves, it's just a really good, what, 35 game run. If you can go like, say, mm -hmm. 25 and 10 in one half, you set yourself up really, really well to win the half and secure a playoff position. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, that's what gives a lot of those uh, a lot of those teams uh, with the managerial hires a lot of hope because 
you don't need a huge, like massive overhaul. It's not usually like a, like years worth of, of projects and you're kind of building for the future. Maybe the way, uh, maybe the way you would in the frontier league, or maybe you w- the way you would in the American association, you can have those quicker turnarounds uh, in the pioneer league. And granted without being, you know, a, a, a minor league team for, for Monclova. I mean, I think that helps a lot because I, I, I honestly can't remember Nick one, example of an indie ball team that has actually benefited from that kind of partnership i i can't name more i can't name you one so you can definitely get it turned around and i, I mean that's no certainly no guarantee that they'll turn it around with, with a new manager but i think with a lot of experience and roster with experience with roster building for a long time i think it's a i think it's a pretty solid hire for for rocky mountain absolutely there i, I really like it i also <laughs> like the fact that it's a deal that takes some through the 2023, 2024, and 2025 seasons. Having that three-year run, I think it really helps with the stability of everything. And I understand the Pioneer League is also a league where, you know, it's younger guys. That's what they want. It's always going to be kind of revolving door of faces. But even still, to have that kind of carryover is nice and to really have the kind of network and to have some stability there, I think is a really solid thing as well. Uh, Only other... yeah. I think I think the only other thing I want to add there is just that it's it is interesting to see a like a three year deal like announced per se. Mm. I that that's not really something. There's oftentimes a lot of like the teams like to do their uh, their kind of staff announcements, including some that we'll talk about later in the show too. Uh, but you don't see usually a lot of contract years for managers and whatnot disclosed. I think most for the most part, because I mean, I believe they're just usually when more often than not one year deals and you kind of yeah. just move from year to year. So uh, I guess that part of it, um, that part of it is interesting, but yeah, you don't really see, you don't see a lot of teams, especially in indie ball or not just the pioneer, pioneer league, but anywhere kind of announce a three year deal uh, for their manager. Yeah, no, it definitely is a, an abnormal thing. I think it varies um, from team to team because I know right now I'm like putting together the the, the manager off season hiring article that I've been promising for like three months now. I'm actually start putting work in on that, and I started doing it earlier today actually. And so I'm going through and I'm trying to find like, okay, let's go through who got signed this off season, who's still here from past years, who's signed extensions, and the extensions are normally where you get the years. Normally it's just like, okay, we're hiring a manager, and it's like a one year deal. Like for a perfect example is like Joliet with uh, Dan Slareth. We typed them up a yeah. lot in last week's show, and so I just kind of assumed at some point, like either an extension was announced or that it was a multi-year deal. I went back and I started looking. It, I can't find anything that says he's still the manager. He's listed on the website, um, but in the formal announcement from you know a year ago, uh, almost exactly a year ago, he got announced at the end of February 2020. It just says he joined. It never says for what. I just kind of assume yeah. he got extended because I have not seen him get signed anywhere else. So they just normally don't really uh, announce these types of things until you get the extension. Now, I will say it's been changing a bit as of recently. I think that's something that I've noticed too, especially as I started doing the research and everything. And you start looking in, it's like, okay, it's like, hey, we signed to a three-year deal or a five-year deal. But a lot of times... That's only getting announced after the guy's already been there. So it is a little bit surprising to see that. I, I'll agree with you there. Well, like, that's not a normal thing, even if it's becoming normalized. 
yeah, and I guess we'll see how that how that kind of continues to shape uh, in the future. But yeah, a little. It's I'm not that it's a bad thing, but yeah. you know, it's it's, it's interesting uh, for now, especially especially Nick, because I mean, you I'll bring up like a college football example. Like you see all these extensions like through like 2045 or something like that, yeah. but it never actually goes to then because like like a college coach will never be in the last year of their deal. Because then they'll be a lame duck and they can't recruit. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I something tells me that Pioneer League teams or any indie ball teams are not going to be able to pay like contract buyouts if they like to terminate a contract soon or like pay the salary of two managers or something. So yeah. he'll be there at least three years. Yeah, something tells me that these contracts aren't very guaranteed either. So it's kind of like, oh, we're just deciding to go in another direction. Best of luck to you, type of deal. You know, so long. Yeah, and good exactly. luck. But yeah, so it definitely is. And I do also think by announcing it too, it's a vote of confidence as well. And I mean, also playing in Colorado Springs helps out a lot too. I think it's probably one of the more, I don't want to say metropolitan areas in the Pioneer League, but it's probably more well known in that regard. And it's it's a nice place to live, which is, you know, uh, I don't want to call it a significant advantage, but if you have multiple offers in the Pioneer League, you know, yeah. Where do you live comes down to it. You know, you're going to spend the summer in the city. So, like, you know, you want to have somewhere decent. So there's that. Uh, only other bit of news to add on to the uh, to the Lancaster hiring is that David Peterson will uh, join on as the pitching coach. I believe he was the manager in, uh, in uh, Ridge Run last year. And and uh, Raphael uh, Malconi will be the hitting coach. Jason Hurst will be an assistant coach on the team. So that looks to be the full lineup for them, which is important as we go to the next bit and final bit from the Pioneer League this week, which is their announcement on their 2023 tryout camp. There is going to be two tryout camps, one on the east, one in the west. Both of them are $500 if you get in on the early bird registration, which is before the end of the month. So before uh, February 28th, if you go on March 1st or later, it will be $600 to register. Uh, full details are available on the Pioneer League website. It will be linked in our show notes. If you want to go over to the website, anyballreport.com, go to the show notes tab, scroll to the bottom of the page and find episode 204 for uh, that link if you want to do that. Uh, camp 1 is going to be in Florida. On That's your eastern camp. That is going to be March 30th through April 2nd. And then the second camp is in Arizona, uh, April 17th through April 20th. So... 3.30 through 4.2 for the Florida camp and 4.17 through 4.20 uh, for the Western Arizona camp. Uh, like I said, exact uh, details, locations, and um, everything you need to know uh, will be there. I will say that there will be a draft following each of these camps, though, and I believe it's 10 players will be drafted. So I believe in each club will sign at least one guy. Now, granted, we also know how these drafts go, where a lot of times you'll draft a guy and the visa issues won't be sorted out yet. So you still got to solve yeah. that. Or, you know, you get to camp and then you don't really last more than like a week or two in camp. But I mean, hey, an opportunity is an opportunity. And if they keep doing this stuff they're doing with Yakker Tech and Baseball Cloud, it's certainly an opportunity for you to go out and, you know, kind of show what you have. Right. I mean, not all drafts are, are created equal um, and not all draft picks are, are created equal as well. But, you know, I, I think it's a it's a good um, 
a good opportunity, especially in the Pioneer League, where those showcases are kind of more important than a lot of the other leagues and uh, trying to find talent. So, uh, the yeah, you know, I mean, they've done this. They've done this really every year of their existence. I mean, the other leagues do it as well. Uh, but uh, definitely, I think, a little bit more important in the Pioneer League, say per se. I guess in the Frontier League, in the sense, they're trying to find values in rookies in the Frontier League and the American Association as well, make it important too. Yeah, absolutely there. But I think with the Pioneer League, though, I will agree. I think it is a little bit more important because of the stringent rules. Uh, going over the Pioneer League eligibility rules, they do list this on the uh, tryout page itself. But it says, and quoting, to be eligible to play on a PBL club's active roster, a prospect shall have played no more than three professional years or three years of professional baseball for the purpose of calculating prior years of baseball experience. One year of professional experience is defined as follows position players, 45 games played, starting pitchers, 10 games started, pitchers in general. So whether you're starting or relieving, 25 games played. Uh, professional experience includes previous play in all professional leagues, domestic or international, but does not include the leagues in the Car uh, Caribbean Federation, the Australian Baseball League, or any other leagues that might become winter ball leagues. So I take that to mean, you know, your Venezuelan leagues, your Nicaraguan leagues, um, Central American leagues, Caribbean ones, as they mentioned. So Dominican, Cuban, I don't know if there's Haitian leagues, but I imagine they would count as well. Australia wouldn't, wouldn't count. There's leagues, leagues like that wouldn't count, but obviously. I, I've never heard of a Haitian league. Is there one? There may be. I mean, it's on the same island as the Dominican Republic, although the Dominican Republic's significantly better off than Haiti. But that's now we're getting into geopolitics and I don't think we want to venture into there. But uh, yeah, in any case, like winter leagues wouldn't count. But I imagine a lot of the Pioneer League talent is from college and those kinds of ranks. So I would also right. say if you are, you know, say 23, 24 and you're going to be graduating sometime soon or you're on pace to or something along those lines basically at the point where you may want to start looking at professional opportunities before you go to the camp i would probably say to check with an ncaa compliance officer or the school to say hey if i go to this tryout does that count as a professional opportunity or professional tryout or something like that how would it affect my eligibility because obviously yeah. this tryout is not worth giving up a full year of eligibility that that just is not a good decision there so and being that you'd be in the end of march april you'd probably be what middle to end of the season so i would definitely say uh to check there if you were interested in that yeah, and the, I'm sure, and the NCAA is just notorious for being so forgiving on situations like that. Oh yeah, well, it depends on the school. Some schools uh, are treated a little bit better than others. I I, I could switch that to a Rutgers rant, but I won't. I won't. Where there's comes only later. one only one Rutgers rant per uh, per indie ball report. Those are the rules. I don't make them. I enforced them with an iron fist, though. So, uh, that is true. With that said, I think we kind of covered everything in the uh, tryout, standard tryout news. So you can go ahead and you can check everything. Make sure you bring your own equipment to the tryout as well. And if you're an international player, I think you need a P1 visa. And you're responsible for getting the visa, not the teams, not the league, not the organization running the tryout. It's on the player to get the visa. So that's something that's important. Also, they're going to have ice water there for you, too. But bring your own lunch. So... 
<laughs> it says that players should also bring their own lunch each day. There I love be... that ice water will be provided. Yeah, no, the exact thing is, will there be refreshments provided for players? And the answer goes, ice water jugs will be provided. Players are encouraged to bring their own personal water bottles that can be filled up, although disposable cups will be available. Players should also bring their own lunch each day. There will be a break in order to eat, but food will not be provided at the tryout. I feel like I could copy like and paste that. It's, I, honestly, I, I was reading that. I was like, this sounds a lot like the golf camp I work at, only we normally don't provide water. We just tell parents, like, make sure that you you send your kids with water. And half the time they don't listen or they bring like those like little mini bottles of water. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Like the ones that have eight ounces of water in it. It's like, it's 95 out. It's the middle of August. Do you want your child to die? We weren't joking. There is no water here. We don't even have water. It's what you bring. Like what's, what's going on here? What, you mean on, on the golf course there aren't just like random water fountains popping up on the fairway? To see, the problem is, and this is a separate rant, but what what the hell? I mean, you got like a, another two hours of driving to do, so we got time to... Two just, hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, see, so we got plenty of time to roll. So We're in Connecticut. There's nothing interesting. <laughs> I want to refute that, but that state's a giant traffic jam. The fact you're moving as quickly as you are through it's surprising to me. But it, the problem is a lot of these kids, their parents and subsequently them are members at country clubs. We're not doing these camps at country clubs. But at clubs, they normally have like water jugs spread out throughout the course, normally two or three per nine. So you'll have one at like, say, hole number two or one at hole number five and then one at round hole seven and then repeat the same thing on the back. So that's normally the case. But the problem is, A, we don't go on the course until the afternoon and B, where we are at, there is a snack shack you can buy stuff from, but if you don't send your kid with enough money to buy their lunch or they're not bringing it, or you, we're not really, I don't want to say we don't monitor, we watch them so that way obviously they don't get lost, but like we're not hawking over them, making sure they buy what they're supposed to. We trust them to, you know, buy the, the either Gatorade or water that would be intelligent to buy at 10 o'clock in the morning when it's yeah. already 85 out instead of buying, you know, a Kit Kat. So, <laughs> like, you know, we're banking on that. And then normally there should be a water fountain available in the clubhouse. Uh, and I use clubhouses very loosely for where we do these camps at. But as I discovered last year, because I ran out of water with the giant jug and I just came in from doing the afternoon, I was like 2.15, 2.30. So I was like, I leave in a half hour, but I'm real thirsty. I ran out of uh, so like I go inside to fill it up from the water fountain. I'm like, it's not working. Why isn't it working? And then one of the dudes that works in the restaurant, because it's like a restaurant clubhouse mix there. He comes out of the bank. He's like, oh, man, that thing doesn't work. I was like, what do you mean it doesn't work? He's like, oh, it hasn't worked for years. And I was oh. like, I was like, wait, so it hasn't worked for years. And I haven't bothered getting it fixed. He's like, yeah, you got to go to the restaurant if you want to. So I was like, all right. And they wanted to charge me for water. I was like, screw that. I'm leaving work in a half hour. I can just deal with it. But I was thinking, like, this is why we tell the parents, make sure you send your kid with enough water. And that's a big lesson to everyone listening. Send your kid with enough water. Like, one, like, 16-ounce bottle of water is not good enough for six hours in the heat. That just isn't going to work. A big jug where it's, like, I don't know, 64 ounces. Now Now we're talking. Now we're making headway on this. And, and it keeps it cool. Oh, yeah, that too. You could dump a bunch of ice in there and keep it nice. Like we have, and the best part is too, 
we bring a cooler and the cooler is full of ice. So like you can throw the, the jugs and stuff into the cooler while we're doing like the different stations and whatnot. And when it's hot, like we're honestly not stupid. We cut the station short instead of going like 45 minutes. It's more like 35. So that way we can get them back underneath the tent and, you know, hydrate and whatnot. There, there's ways you could do this. Just be intelligent, please. Like we long and short is the people running the camps that are getting paid about 20 an hour before taxes do not want to have to keep buying your kids water because you plan poorly and we don't want kids passing out from heat stroke. So please right. send your kids with enough water. There's my little rant. That is a rant I'm sure people thought they would not get on this episode of the Indie Ball Report, but here we are. It's a damn good show, but sometimes we go on tangents. But they're good tangents, so... Uh, see, now we're getting into the vintage. See, this is what we mean by Indie Ball After Dark. Once we get to Indie Ball After Dark, it gets a lot more fun, people. This is why you need to follow the Twitter at Indie Ball Pod during the season especially because there's just a bunch of random Pioneer League twins tweets and a bunch of other stuff going on and normally it's just me and like a handful of the usual suspects tagging each other hell last year we just got into a whole big thread i think it was like me ryan rob pimsner we were just going back and forth sharing taylor swift gifts there's a lot <laughs> of stupid stuff we do and it's just entertaining to watch so i'd highly recommend that but you know what i mentioned rob and i mentioned ryan who's indie ball nation now but prior to that he was uh he was focusing on the AOPB, the Atlantic League, and that's where our next story takes us to, the Long Island Ducks. So I know, silky. It's like a piece of Dove chocolate, just that smooth. And you know who likes chocolate? I assume the Long Island Ducks do, because Wally Backman's back and Lou Ford's back, and that's pretty sweet. But something that's a little sour is the fact that they have an old face that was with uh, Stan Island last year. And if you're not following along on Twitter, then you probably don't know about it. But Nelson Figueroa goes back to the Ducks here. And we're going to discuss that one second. But let's just quickly knock out the two familiar faces that are, are probably never going to disappear. Wally Backman, year four for him. He's going to keep coming back because he's successful as a manager. Bit of a down year last year. But, I mean, uh, wasn't the most usual of suspects making the postseason. We'll say that. And Lou Ford's back, but he'll play until he drops dead. So that's not really surprising at all either. Year 13 for him, and yeah. he's closing in on like five different duck records. And he's probably going to play in 1,100 games. This He'll reach his 11th, 1,100th game. And he'll probably come close to that many hits too. I, I'd have to check to make, get the exact numbers. I'll go back to the press release uh, while you comment on those two coming back, Will. And then we'll talk about Figueroa in one second. At the end of the day, like you also have to look at it from a business perspective for, for the Ducks. Wally Backman is a huge name that draws people. He's a big yeah. personality. I mean, again, like out east Suffolk County, that is a heavy Mets area. And mm -hmm. they know Wally Backman with the 86 Mets. So, and, and also Wally ba I'm not saying Wally Backman is just there because his name, because he's not at all. He's a very good manager. He's, he had a down year last year. But you know what? If there is any organization in all of indie ball that has earned the right to get a, a pass after a down year, it is the Long Island Ducks. Certainly. Uh, so that Quebec. That Quebec as well, yeah. But it, it, Quebec always like slips my mind, regardless though. Yeah. Um ba I mean Backman's a really good manager. He would have to do something really not good uh to not or be really, really bad 
in order to not come back as Ducks manager. And so him being back, Lou Ford is just, I mean, he's timeless. I, they've run out of ways to really describe what Lou Ford does and how he does it. Uh, it's just incredible. And he, he's not going to play the full season. Uh, he's not really going to, he's not going to play the field, but you know, at the end of the day, he's still is a somewhat productive hitter. Oh, yeah. uh, somehow. So I, I find that to be just appalling and amazing. And I mean, Lou Ford will be with the Ducks as long as Lou Ford wants to be with the Ducks. Yeah, like I even take it a step further and say Lou Ford is more than a somewhat productive. I call him productive because, I mean, like, let's just quickly look at his 2022. He only played 32 games, so, you know, slowing down a lot. But in 32 games, he had 21 runs scored, 34 hits, over a hit a game, five home runs, five doubles, 18 RBIs. He walked five times. He struck out 22, which admittedly isn't great. But still, his slash line was 270. 293, 429. So for a dude that's 45, that's pretty damn good. Like, that's a productive player. Yeah, and I mean, the year prior in 21, he had over 300 in nearly 60 games. So, I mean, like, he's still got it. It's just a matter of how much can, like, from a from a legitimate baseball, like, on the field perspective, how much value, because I, what, you'd assume he probably plays, like, 30, you could, I guess, pencil him in for 35 to 40 games uh, without injury. Yeah. I think with, with a DH, like, it's just another nice bat in the lineup. The Ducks will have plenty of good bats in their lineup. They always do. The He represents the Ducks very, very well, and uh, him coming back is, is certainly good to see, and, uh, a, a win for a win for indie baller. I've never met someone who does not like Lou Ford. So it yeah. just uh, it doesn't exist. He, he's just such an anomaly. I mean, 40, uh, 54 total bases in thirty two games. I mean, he's just he adds like at the very least he's a productive guy off the bench. And for at least a brief moment, he makes my hatred for the DH subside. But uh, I, I mentioned a second ago I was going to get you the full notes on everything he's coming up close on. Uh, here's the the way for everything here. He's the franchise leader in hits all time with 1,002. He's one of four Atlantic Leaguers to reach 1,000 hits in the league. He is 94 hits away from tying former Ducks infielder Bryant Nelson as the all-time leader. So essentially, if he gets to 1,096 or 1,097, my mistake, 96 ties or 97 puts him over the top. And at 97, you got to push for 1,100 to make it a clean number. He has totaled 497 RBIs, 527 runs, 218 doubles in a Ducks uniform, which leaves him 51 RBIs, 72 runs, and 27 doubles shy of Ray Navarrete for the Ducks all-time records there. And Ford's 842 games with the flock have left him 46 shy of equaling Dan Lyons' team record of 888. So, would it be crazy to say he plays in 47, gets it, and then calls it? Um, because I don't know if yeah. I don't know if he's a type of guy though to that kind cares. of look at it in the sense of a milestone, like a re- like a number for him to hit and be like, "All right, I'm done." I think he just loves playing baseball. Yeah, that's true. I'm just wondering because now he's going to be going into his age 46 season. There's a lot of wear on those tires. Like, obviously, he loves playing ball. But I also kind of counter that with like, he's got to love to play ball, but he's still going to coach. So he kind of like levels off here. And I also kind of get the sense of like, 
you know, he's obviously like a company man because like he's played for, I mean, since 2010 for this organization. I mean, you spent 13 years with the team. You know, you guys got some affinity there and the team loves him, loves him and the fans love him. So, I mean, you'd help the team out a lot if you were to be able to say, all right, we're going to go for these milestone records and we'll be able to have like special ceremonies and stuff and be able to like, kind of promote that. You'd really help the cause if you did that. And I could very well see him doing that. But yeah, like, yeah. what's crazy to me, though, is he's made three All-Star games. The most recent one was in 2018. <laughs> I mean, really, he was 41 when he made that All-Star too. That's just crazy. This dude's the Tom yeah. Brady of baseball. I'm sorry. He just keeps going. Right. Oh, God. Blue yeah. Ford outlasted Tom Brady. Suck it. Yeah, really. And, uh, yeah, obviously, we already said everything about Wally. He's been good. He's earned himself uh, plenty of rope. They didn't fire him after the one set of allegations back in, what was that, 19? Then he wasn't getting fired. So, you know, he's he's going to be in for the long haul, barring something, like you said, well, significant huh. there. Um, you, would need a, you would need a literal criminal conviction. Yeah. Charges weren't good enough. We're going to need a conviction on him. Um, he was acquitted. Yeah. He was acquitted. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to say? Exactly. So, I mean, like, we can mention it, but, I mean, at the end of the day, he, like you said, he was acquitted. So, I mean, that's, you know, it was just an unfortunate sequence of events. Uh, but, yeah, you're in law school. You're, 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 you want to you go into law school, Nick. He's innocent until proven guilty, and he was proven innocent. So, yeah. what are you going to say? Well, well, I should not prove it. I was going to say, He's technically, no one's proven innocent. innocent. You're guilty or not guilty. True. But, yeah, and to be fair, I'm already in at three of the ten law schools I applied to. I'm waitlisted at three and only rejected at one, and I'm waiting on three. So right now, we're three, one, and three, which honestly isn't that bad. Three, one, and three. How many? So that's uh, it's nine points. Nice. Yeah. So I'm not. I'm not hating that. Well, I mean, to be fair, if I get the loser point, then I get. I'm up to twelve. Yeah. True. Now all I'm waiting on is Albany Rutgers and uh, Roger Williams. So let's see how this plays out. But, okay. but more important than any of that, because, you know, future careers aren't important. What is important is Nelson uh, Figueroa spurns the upstart Ferry Hawks to go over to uh, Long Island. Like, I obviously get it. Like, Stan Island has a new manager. The Ducks are known to bring their guys back. Nelson's one of their guys, really, because, I mean, he played with them in the past. If not for a long time, he still did. And still part of me is like, mm, it feels like the Ducks took a chance to kind of stick it to the Fairy Hawks. Like, I'm not sure if I mentioned on the show some of the stuff that they supposedly had done before or not. But rumor is they like to kind of like poke them a little bit and kind of screw them a little bit. And it's the kind of thing where it's like, I get why you're doing this, but it seems like you'd be better off not. Because if you build up your rival team and make them a really healthy, viable team early on and they establish, you'll be able to really play with that rivalry dynamic. And it could be, you know, a symbiotic relationship here. Because let's be real, how many people are the Long Island Ducks losing to the Stanton Island Ferry Hawks? Like if well, it's funny. It literally the one that went from Long Island to Staten Island was cut from Long Island. So you yeah. can do the math. Yeah, so like, it just it, it's it's such an odd situation there, and it's just I don't quite like grasp 
you know, all of it. Like, obviously, Nelson's good at his job. Like, I think that's fairly safe to say. I mean, even when we looked at the Ferry Hawks last year, their pitching was good. It's just they couldn't hit for shit. And then that was a major holdup for them. But ultimately, you know, I, I just kind of kind of funny that it's like, okay, hot guy goes and becomes duck dude. It's, you know, it's it's worthy of mentioning there. And I just... I wonder if it was kind of like a deliberate thing or just one of those it kind of happened things. Because I could very well see both happening. I I lean along more along the lines of it kind of just happened. And at the end of the day, if the Ferry Hawks aren't taking the initiative to bring back Nelson Figueroa, why would the why would the Ducks wait around? So uh, I think that and not to mention there's also on a on a bigger scale, again, the Met market. Yeah. Nelson Figueroa is a former Met. He was pretty well known Met. Uh, and so I think it has more to do with that than it has to do with sticking it to the Ferry Hawks because at the end of the day, there's, there, was, there is no rivalry yet. The Ferry yeah. Hawks have not done anything to, to, and I'm not saying there won't be, but as of right now, they're really, it's just geographical or whatever, but like nothing has actually like happened yet. Like for like High Point and Gastonia have had some really good battles to establish that as a true rivalry. I mean, Staten Island's only been around one year, but I think that it, it hasn't. Uh, they haven't really challenged Long Island uh, in in that many senses to, to kind of make that uh, a rivalry yet. So I don't think there would be any bad. Like like that would be something I would expect, Nick, between like Long Island and Somerset. Yeah. Okay. They're not there. They're they're not there yet. That, yeah. Those obviously those teams are not at that level of dislike to each other yet. So uh, I, I don't. I wouldn't think there would be anything like that there. I think it's more just along the lines of, hey, you're not bringing back a guy like Nelson Figueroa who had this team that really struggled, but his pitching was pretty good. He's also a former Met. He's also a big name. I would assume he has some sort of relationship with Backman. I don't know that for sure, but I mean, Backman's been around the Mets organization beforehand, so that's, I would. That's my thinking too. That is somewhere in the minor league. I would for the assume. Mets. I'd assume they have some sort of relationship. I think it just makes sense, and not to mention, out of everything, Nick Nelson Figueroa probably wants to be the pitching coach for Long Island more than he wants to be the pitching coach for Staten Island. I think that's fair. what it boils down to as well. Very fair there. I mean, like it definitely makes sense on that front there. I just, it, it's just such a curious thing here, just because of some of the stuff I hear behind the scenes hard to be like that. And it's just, you know, I, I feel like Stan Island really should have been thinking like, because last year it felt like they went too heavy on the Mets side and not heavy enough on the Yankee side. And so now I just don't want to see them overcorrect and just kind of go heavy on the Yankee side and not so much on the Mets side. I, I just hope that that's not what's happening here. And for all we know, it could have been Figueroa being like, I don't want to come back, so I'm out. It could have been Homer Bush saying, hey, I'm going to build my own staff. you got an opportunity elsewhere, I suggest taking it because I can't guarantee you anything. It could be numerous facts. It could be all of the above. So I, I don't really know what to make of it. I just kind of want to throw it out there because it is an interesting thing to see. And it's very clear that, you know, Stan Island especially wants that. And like I said, I just... I hope it's not Long Island trying to get at and like hit Stan Island too hard too early. Cause it just, yeah, you know, it they're you not fine for the same people, you know, like they're 
the Staten Island people, I think, are largely people on Staten Island, obviously, and New Jerseyans. No one from New Jersey is driving out to Long Island regularly to go hey, see a Ducks game. I did it one time. I did it one time. That's why I said regularly. I did it, and it was a complete and utter disaster, and I'm never doing it again from New Jersey to Long Island, ever. Because everyone makes that hours. mistake. Because everyone makes that mistake once. Everybody does it once, where they're like, oh, Long Island's not that bad. I can get out there. And they put it in the Google Maps, and they're like, oh, look, it's only like an hour and a half. It's not bad. And then you find out that someone's Camry broke down the middle lane of one bridge, and now it's backed up for 45 minutes. And then when you finally get past that, and then you're like, oh, shit, it's 530, and I'm driving through New York. And then all of yeah. a sudden, you're not going anywhere quick. And you start the question right around about 515, when you're still nowhere near Long Island. Should I just try to turn around and go back to New Jersey? Because I doubt I'm going to make it there by the third inning. And then you decide, screw it, I'm just going to push on. If I don't get there in time, I'll find something else to do out there. And you wind up showing up, and it's like 7.20, and you missed one, one and a half innings, and you're like, ah, I wasn't that bad. And then you think, oh, shit, I have to drive back now. So, yeah. you know, like, obviously, the Ducks are successful because they have all of Long Island there to work with, and Long Island's a great market to go with, and obviously they're a great organization too. But you know, with Stan Island, you don't have the same holdup. Now they'll have some similar issues, you know, traffic and whatnot. But it's a lot easier to go to Stan Island than Long Island. So I, my main point is, I just hope that they're not tearing each other down here. I, I would don't want to see that yet. You can wait a little while until you, until you start doing that. So agreed. Yeah. We need to leave some big-time battles on the field before we get there that we just haven't really seen yet. Exactly. So with that, uh, we'll keep it moving here, and we will go to the next part of the Atlantic League news, which is earlier this week they announced for their 25th anniversary, they're going to be doing a silver anniversary team. There will be 25 players named, 16 position players, 9 pitchers, of which there will be 6 starting pitchers and three relievers all will include at least one player that was active in each year of the league so from 98 through uh 2023 these players will all be active now of course that means when they add Lou Ford to this team, he will count for 13 of those seasons. So, you know, it, it will be okay in that regard. Uh but yeah, so you'll have that there. Uh, the list originally had 162 names on it of all-stars, champions, and record holders. They cut it down to 25, as mentioned. They're going to be revealed over the next 12 weeks, one at a time. I take that to mean they're going to reveal two a week leading up to training camp. They may have, or leading up to opening day, rather. They may have to go ahead and, uh, you know, add a few in a week or knock a few down a week just to make the math works. But if you do 12 weeks, it's... You know, three months, three months from now is May because you have February, March and April uh, going all the way through it. So they'll have to work it out. But opening day is end of April anyway. So you can make it you can line it up. So I figure that's the way it's going to go. And earlier in the week after they announced it, probably the next day, I think it was like Wednesday, they announced uh, the player that was going to be added. Uh, the first player to the silver team was announced. It is Mark Guyfoyle. Uh, he has been named to the team. He was a lefty reliever for the Bridgeport Bluefish from 1998 to 2003. He won the championship in Bridgeport in 99. And he is third all-time in saves at 122, the most by a left-handed reliever. Uh, he appeared in 296 games with a 22-19 and record. 
a 307 ERA, 318 strikeouts, 325 and a third innings pitch, three-time All-Star and one-time postseason All-Star. That is who gets in as that first reliever spot. So overall thoughts on doing the team, and I guess do you have any thoughts on Mike uh, Guy Foyle uh, being named to the uh, team as well? I guess that'd be good. He seems deserving. That's all I really have to say. I don't remember him pitching, uh, so I can't really comment on the, the level of play. Yeah, I can't really comment on the, the 98 to 2003. I mean, he seems deserving and has some good accolades. I, I will say, though, and I, I know this is going to sound shocking for yeah. a lot of people and loyal listeners to this podcast, uh, but I am going to enthusiastically praise the Atlantic League. Are, yeah. are we ready for this? this the, is awesome. I have to put the clapping effects in now. Yes, you have to put, put the clapping effects in, do whatever you got to do, because this is awesome. This is a great idea, and this is something I've been waiting for them for a lot, for so many years. What the Atlantic League, when they went the record book for three years, like this is the type of history that the Atlantic League has a rich history with some great names and great performances and teams that were great, uh, and you just don't know about them. And teams don't know about them, and especially as the league uh, is starting to change. And, you know, of course, there, there's nothing you can do about that, and that's not a good or bad thing, but uh, it's, it's, it's good to honor the history, and it goes a lot beyond of what the Atlantic League had done in the past, which is basically a lot of their strategy is every time Patrick Mahomes does anything as the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, it is Patrick Mahomes like just did this. Did you know his dad played for the Blue Crabs? Yes, you've told me every single time that Patrick Mahomes has done anything. Also, Pat Mahomes was not like, barely was in the Atlantic League. Like, did, did, he, but did you know Pat Mahomes Sr. played for the Ducks as well as Rich Hill and Scott Casimir played oh, for the Skeeters? And Ricky Henderson was in this league too? Yeah, like, great. But I also, like, I want to know more about the players. Like, how much of... How much does the Atlantic League talk about Brian Nelson? How much do they talk about Jeff Nettles? How much do they talk about Josh Presley? They don't, right? And and I know that those names aren't what makes the aren't aren't what like drives engagement or whatever. And anytime and I don't blame them for saying anytime Rich Hill does something, like, hey, like yeah. Rich Hill pitched a pitch for the Ducks or whatever, and he's still pitching in the freaking major leagues at age forty two or whatever he is now. Yeah. Uh, which is which is amazing. But I also think that there is a place that and and I'm why I'm so I'm so happy that the Atlantic League is finally doing something like this is to honor those players who yeah maybe they didn't get back to the affiliated ball or the major leagues for whatever reason uh, based on age or whatever but made a huge impact on the league and on the franchises that they that they touched on and you just don't hear and like you just don't hear like the league or anybody to talk about like. How many Atlantic League name? How many Atlantic League fans currently know the name Glenn Murray? Like, yeah. there not many. There not many do. Guarantee you know that Scott Casimir pitched for the Skeeters, and I guarantee you know that uh, that Roger Clemens made two starts for the Sugarland Skeeters and whatnot. And but Trace McGurry what too. A, yeah, but what a guy! What about a guy like like uh, like Lincoln Lincoln Mickelson? Like Glenn, yeah. Like Glenn Murray, like it, like Murray was like for for Nashua for the for the pride and was hitting thirty five home runs a season. Like this, 
and yeah, you're right. He didn't get back to the major league. He's not the big story. But those are the guys that leagues need to do a better – that specifically the Atlantic League needs to do a better job of, uh, of honoring. And I think for the 25th anniversary – Sorry for the very long-winded and passionate rant here, yeah. but uh, I, I think that this is exactly the kind of stuff they need to do to honor their history uh, and and honor their history more so than just taking guys that are already famous and just saying, hey, this famous guy played in the Atlantic League. Start talking about people who actually made a big – the players – uh, and managers or whoever who made a big footprint on your league. And that's something they have to do a better job of. And I'm hoping that this is the start of that. And I'm watching, I'm very excited about this idea and to see that this team rolled, this team continues to be rolled out. Yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. Like I'm not even asking for you to promote guys like a, uh, like a Jimmy Hurst, for example, who did fantastic for a very long time. I'm not asking for like, you know, even some of the more contemporary guys that are killing it. Like, Daryl Thompson would be a great example of a guy you could promote. And quite yes. frankly, I'm yep. looking forward to the next 25 years of, did you know Brandon Phillips played in this league? I'm looking forward to that, yeah. that big time. But, you know, I'm not even asking for those guys. I'm not asking for like Jim Fuller or Victor Capion to get mentioned, even though that would be nice. You know, I'm not asking for any of that. But like we could even promote just like the Conseco brothers, the fact that they were both here and you never hear about that. You don't hear about Armando Benitez being here. These are still big name guys. These are recognizable names. I mean, who doesn't know Jose Conseco? I can maybe see not remembering Ozzy Conseco, but certainly Jose, sure. you remember. And obviously... He's got his own issues, and I could get why you don't want to promote him as much as other guys. But there's a lot of a lot of other guys that could be promoted, and that's something that we've been saying, like you mentioned, for years now. If they don't get acknowledged, they need to be acknowledged. These guys deserve to be acknowledged. And I really, I agree with you. I really love the silver anniversary team idea, doing it slowly in the ramp up to the start of the season, so everybody gets their moment in the sun, gets their chance to breathe. What I even love to see even more is if if there was an All-Star game, we could go ahead and pull all 25 of them out there for the All-Star game and have them out and do a thing. That would be nice. Yeah. But, you know, if we were able to do that, even because obviously they're going to be spread out across the country. Some guys are going to be, you know, in Fairfield, Connecticut, like Guy Foyle is, and others are probably going to be in like Birmingham, Alabama, and some will be in the wilderness of Montana. So it'll be hard to get them together. But if you could go ahead and like, host a couple of heritage date games a year i or not even a year just this year have one or two heritage games and i get it like the ducks are really like the last they're not even an og team but like as far as teams that exist in the 90s they're them and then it's like lancaster and southern maryland and york are the next three oldest which are kind of trippy to me because i always view them in like that kind of second yeah wave. isn't that crazy yeah it just is really weird to me because i'm just like for me why don't you say atlantic league the teams i immediately think of are nashua nork somerset Long island uh atlantic city and bridgeport like those are the ones that i immediately like oh yeah or even camden camden too yeah like camden too like those are just the ones that come to my mind i don't really like obviously i know lancaster i know york's there sugar land you know had an imprint there but i certainly don't think like charleston and high point and gastonia and lexington like those are just not like they're atlantic league teams but they're not like for lack of a better term, they're not my Atlantic League teams. They're the new ones. And I'm happy they're here, obviously. If they weren't here, we'd have a major problem. But, you yeah. know, you know, I I still don't think about that. So, for me, it, 
I obviously understand you probably can't, like some, in some cases you physically can't, like you physically cannot play a game in Camden or Bridgeport or Newark anymore. The stadiums just aren't there. But I understand it'd be very difficult to work something out with Sugarland or Somerset. I get it. So it's not a practical thing, but it would be nice if we could go ahead and have some sort of date where we could get all 25 guys there and do something yeah. proper to, you know, give them a send off or whatnot, because these guys were critical to building the league. So I, I will agree with you. And I don't want to make this section sound a little too ranty because it does sound a little ranty, but like, I, I think we both really want to hammer on the point of this is fantastic. And I'd love to see more of it. And I love too that after they posted like, all right, Mike's part of the team. He's the first one there that they then followed it up and posted a video or like a short clip of what looks like a zoom call between Rick white and uh guy foil. I, yeah. I really like seeing that because you get to hear them talking, you get to hear the reaction to it. And like for some of them, I'm sure it's just like, yeah, I played professional baseball at one point and they moved on. It's not that much to them anymore. But for other guys, I mean, like, you know, if you played like six, seven, eight years in the Atlantic League, that's a non insignificant amount of time of your life that you spent there. There's probably a lot of meaningful life events that happened to you personally during that time. And in some cases, what happened there probably had a large impact on your life going forward. So it is something special and to be honored by that. It's special to the individual and it's also special to a lot of the fan bases too. And one of the concerns I had before they started announcing names was, is it just going to be the names we know? Are they just going to be playing the hits and they're going to throw a couple of token guys in here that you know, everyone kind of loves and that, you know, are Atlantic League guys, but they're not really publicized. There'll be like three or four of them. And then the other 20 spots are going to be, you know, your brand names that really shouldn't be there. And it doesn't look like they're going to do that. It looks like they're actually going to go with, you know, these guys are responsible for the league's success and that they're actually going to put a priority on performance in the league and longevity, which were the two things I really, really, really wanted to see. Those are what I wanted above all else. But when you have a guy that spent six years in the league or five years in the league as your first guy, that tells me, okay, longevity matters, holding records matters, being up there on the stat list matters. And that's what gets me really excited for this, that we're not just going to get your token names like we were saying in the beginning, like your Rich Hills that pitched one game here. We're actually going to get meaningful guys that spent time here, that spent you know careers here. And, you know, I, I hope that, you know, if there's any feuds with any of the people here that that didn't affect the list and that we're actually getting the 25 most important people in the Atlantic Lakes history, because it, it really I really like seeing this. I really I agree with you. I, I'm very excited about this. Yeah, I think it's just it's important and it gets those fans excited, too. I mean, especially the ones that like remember like the titles or whatever. And uh, the, maybe if those players want championships and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's just it's really cool. I'm glad I'm glad the league's doing it. Absolutely there. And on that note, we'll move on to a quick stop in the league that I think most of us have forgotten existed. And we like we, we did an interview about two years ago with the CEO of this league. So you can go back. I think it's episode 98. Uh if you want to listen to the interview with the CEO of the Maverick League, and we have news from that league. We have not really covered them since because, quite frankly, and I, I hate to be cruel to uh, the league that we had a CEO from on the show, but if we're cruel to the Atlantic League occasionally, I feel like these guys are fair game as well. Uh, they're a largely irrelevant league, and normally when we have mentioned in the past, it's more or less 
Have they admitted defeat and joined the Pioneer League yet? Or are they still going to do this kind of like circuit sideshow thing that they've been doing that probably is cheaper than joining the Pioneer League and the reason why they're doing it? Uh, but yeah, so they added a, a staff member. Uh, they added Kim McKay. And so the only reason I'm mentioning this is because when I did my usual search through of every team and every league website, uh, I do before all that, I look up independent baseball and then I go to the news tab on Google to see if there's anything major that I may have missed and didn't see or something like oh look at uh, teams building a new ballpark which apparently there may be a team in North Carolina there's something there I gotta look into that but that's not important what came up was the Maverick League hires well-known person like something like that you'll see the, the link in the show notes go there uh, and so I looked up Kim McKay and it appears that she's well known in the world of watercraft racing so naturally, I was like, oh, it must be like speedboats. And so I did a little bit more digging because in the article it says she's going to head up the business inquiries. Uh, I don't know if that means she's going to be in charge of like sponsorships and professional partnerships and stuff like that. Or if it just means like if you want to sponsor something like an inning or put an ad up on the wall, you call her and she handles it. I don't really know exactly what. Just as she'll head up business inquiries so make of that what you will so i looked it up because apparently there's like oh she's qualified for this i was like okay let me look to see what the deal is and i discovered a watercraft racing is jet ski racing which honestly sounds pretty cool and b i couldn't find any credential for this as in i don't know what makes her qualified to handle this or not so Good on Kim McKay for getting a job in the Maverick League. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how this works. And to the Maverick League, I assume she's big in the greater Salem, Oregon region. And that this is part of the reason why she's being brought in. And um, I hope you know what you're doing. And I hope I missed something uh, that was very important. Uh, because I, I frankly don't know why she was hired A and B, why she's heading up business inquiries, which seems to be an extremely important thing. But uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what more I have to say on this. Well, I'm not sure uh, what your thoughts are on it, but I'm very curious to hear them. Um. Yeah, it's 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 uh intriguing, I guess. You know, like. It's the one, it's the Maverick League, which I frankly didn't know was still playing. Uh, they are. They have a TV so, deal now, geez, too. Yeah. Was a TV deal? Yeah, yeah, what they have it? a TV deal. Uh, give me one second. I'll pull it up. I, ha I still have their homepage, which is, uh, it doesn't actually have a logo. It's a Wikipedia thing, and then it takes a second to load, and then it's a dark thing. But yeah, if you go to news, it actually lists out every news thing. It says Maverick Leagues or Mavericks League signs TV deal. That's a typo. They should remove the S unless, uh, no, it actually is Mavericks League. Um, that's plural, not possessive. Uh, Mavericks Independent Baseball signs broadcast deal with Ma with Maybacks Global Entertainment LLC to jump on board with Comfy TV and iHoly Field TV networks. Uh, they play 96 games. I don't know what that means. Uh, games will be airing every weekend on local TV stations across America, including major media markets such as Boston, New York City, Los Angeles, Fresno, and other outlying communities in middle America and rural 
communities throughout the country. Okay, I'm just going to say, can we take a minute to say that's very insulting to Boston, LA, and New York to put Fresno in that same conversation? Like, if you're going to pick a, a California city, Fresno. like you could have said San Francisco, you could have said Los Angeles, hell, you could have even said San Diego, which I still would have scoffed at, but I would have been like, okay, you know, they're, they're somewhat major, I'll give them that, but Fresno, okay, um, I Holy Field broadcasts will carry games in metro urban centric, Detroit, Miami, throughout Louisiana, Jackson, Mississippi, um... Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's an actual TV thing. I think it's just a streaming thing. Um, I, you could go to the Maverick League's website, which is mavericksindependentleague.com, if you want to look up more. Just go to the news, and it's the first thing under it. This is it's old though. This has been a thing for a while. I, we may have even covered it. I I honestly forgot about it. But yeah, they do have a TV deal. Huh. Well, guess you're learning something new every day. And uh, yeah. Go Mavericks League. Yeah. I, so, uh, I just, I hope you guys know what you're doing. Like, I'm not cheering for anyone to downfall, but I'm sorry. There's a lot of meat on this bone. And uh, I guess we'll move on to the American Association so we can wrap up the news thing an hour into the show because it's going to be a little bit of a show this week. Like, we actually had news to discuss and we still do have the review to do, uh, which, you know, I'm pretty, I'm cool doing it and keep going with it. Like, it may take a minute to edit, but, you know, it, we're due for a long show in the offseason. Uh, but I will end with the Maverick League by just saying one thing. Jet ski racing does sound pretty cool, doesn't it? I I, I can't say that I would uh, that I would try it. Yeah. But I do I am intrigued by it. I think it does sound fun for people who know how to do it. Yeah, like I just think that's kinda it'd be kinda cool to watch. You know, like, just imagine you're chilling on the beach watching some dude just churn jet skis. You know, like, that's that's pretty sick. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not, it sounds fun. And I guess it's somehow connected to independent league baseball now. Yeah, like like I said, the only thing I could find on Kim McKay is that she's one of the best professional watercraft racers at one point being top five in the world i believe ranking number four at highest and she's a big baseball fan and i pray to god that that's not the qualification they're talking about i, I like i when i say i hope i'm missing i genuinely mean i hope i overlooked something i hope i didn't google it right and that there is some sort of other qualification and that she built up some sort of like jet ski racing empire or was important in some sort of business development and then that's why she's heading this and it's not just like oh cool person i like and the thing i like is available let me bring them on like i really hope it's not that because like i said i want them to do well it's just you forget about them a lot to be honest yeah you know like already it's hard to cover the pioneer league because they start every game at like nine ten o'clock eastern so it's not great but the Maverick League's way out there, and they're firmly in like ten o'clock start time. And I gotta be honest, I'm not. I'm not trying to find those games. I'm not. There's too much else in the core four going on. So yeah, but uh, American Association time because we do have two important things to talk about over there. And the first of those things is Steve Schuster. He's no longer with the Winnipeg Gold Eyes because he's taking a job with the New York Mets organization, namely in Double A Binghamton, as a data analyst. The Levittown, New York native, becomes became a 
analytics wizard in recent years. And anyone that doesn't follow him on Twitter did themselves a great disservice by not doing so. That man had all sorts of advanced numbers and would break stuff down. And like he had Northern League records and Northern League analytics at one point. And I was stunned. Yeah. He's a pretty nice dude, too. I've talked to him back and forth. We had one disagreement once when I was like, the being in Canada with the pandemic thing kind of helps you out a bit because every time you play a home game, you know, visiting teams have to basically have a COVID squad and that's going to help you. Not to say there aren't disadvantages there, but that's going to help you for the home games. And we had a disagreement on that. But outside of that, really nice guy. And frankly, I don't really have any issues with him. He's was always helpful to us, one of the better media guys. He was broadcast of the year last year. And uh, overall, he's going to be missed in independent ball. Like As far as off the field, like not directly involved with the field staff and the play, he's one of the most important guys in that operation there. And I mean, you can't blame a guy for taking an opportunity to be closer to home and, you know, to move up and do something which, quite frankly, it looks like he's more interested in. He's more interested in being on the data and analytics side than broadcasting. And if that's what he wants to do, like, all the power to him. And I wish him nothing but the best with the Mets organization, especially when you get to work for the team that you grew up cheering for. That's, you know, it's a great opportunity. You can't blame anyone for taking it. So, but still, he'll be missed there. And I, I thought it was worthy of mention. Yeah, absolutely. And and Steve is one of the best because my best my best uh, memory of Steve is uh, I think we got into like a, like an hour or two like back and forth on Twitter about how he calculated Atlantic League war because he got like this whole like spreadsheet of like Atlantic League or oh, yeah. uh, Atlantic League war. And I was trying to figure out how to uh, how to calculate it. And he was showing me and uh yeah, he's one of the best. And I think in, in a lot of ways, when he is a pioneer, I think, in in, the, in uh, independent league baseball, not just the American Association, of just, you know, pushing that kind of the data and analytics that you, you're starting to see a lot of these leagues and teams kind of use and push uh, as like as trying to be attractive to potential players and, uh, and teams and pushing the partnerships they have with with certain software companies and whatnot. So I think that uh, Steve was really a pioneer because there were not many people who were talking about analytics and independently baseball when Steve was doing it. So uh, congratulations to him. I mean, he's a terrific broadcaster. Certainly will be missed in the world of indie ball, but I'm sure that I'm sure the Mets definitely know what they're doing bringing him on, and, uh, and I'm sure he's going to do great there. So a great guy uh, and super happy for him. It's a great opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, the dude knows what he's doing. He's he's one of the first for the analytics, like you mentioned. The only other like real analytic push I remember seeing that was kind of like out there and, and kind of open was with the y'alls. The y'alls were big into that as well. They had a whole nerd squad. Most of them got poached after the 22 season. And Lexington did it for a little bit. I think that was more of my Coltex doing than anything else. So, you know, like some of the teams have it. And I think Steve's a large portion of, you know, that being more of a focal point, uh, certainly there. And, you know, I think he's done more than enough to warrant, you know, at least the serious discussion, if not a guaranteed spot in the American Association Hall of Fame. I think he has done a lot there, whether it's with previous organizations prior to Winnipeg or just this time in Winnipeg. He's done an awful lot there, and I think he warrants a serious discussion on that front. And I don't, I, it may sound like hyperbole, but realistically, when you look at a lot of what he did, just even from a promotional of the league standpoint, by just putting the numbers out there and going, 
here's all the spin numbers, here's all of this, here's this, here's that. It appeals to a certain really nerdy and geeky kind of population, and I'd be willing to venture to say... Me! Yeah. That's me! Yeah. Like, I, I guess I, I'm willing to venture to say, the people that are following along on Twitter, we're going to eat that stuff up. Even if we don't love analytics, it's still like, this is very interesting. I don't ever see it on this platform. And so it, it's certainly no. great. So. Yeah, best of luck to him. You know, I, I really do wish him the best. Uh, with that yeah, said, uh, yeah. With that said, we have one last bit of news before we have a review to get into, and that is in Sioux Falls. Uh, they are eyeing a parcel of land in downtown Sioux Falls, nearly the middle of it. Uh, it's currently on the edge of what's considered downtown, but it's going to eventually become the heart with the way the city is growing and expanding. At least that's what it sounds like from the town council. Uh, the long and short of it is, uh, it's essentially failed uh commercial slash industrial land there's some parks over by it but it's about a 10 acre plot of land that currently the local government wants to put something on there to renew it and they're citing a lot of community input they're citing an awful lot of you know council input they're looking to see what's going to go here and it seems like they want to bring about that part of town and like we said uh when you listen to the count and you read through the articles, by and large, they seem to be on the same page of we need to expand downtown because it's currently being outgrown. In addition to it being outgrown, uh, we need to go some way. We already went north. We already went, you know, east. We're looking west now and we're looking south sooner than later. So they're kind of like, what should we do? And one of the mock-ups is, well, we could go with stadiums for this. And the Canaries and a local soccer team want the stadium. Obviously, the Canaries are far more on the side of, how about we have a baseball-centric one, and then we can move out of our 82-year-old uh, stadium into this brand new one. And obviously, the birdcage was renovated about 23 years ago, turn of the millennium, that got a refresh on then with new ownership in there. They've been putting a little bit of work in there, too. So I don't want to make it sound ancient, but it definitely... It's closer to the end of its lifespan than it is the beginning of its lifespan. I think that's also a fair thing to say. So with that as kind of like your template, as your basis, it's not surprising that the team itself has done a large PR push on it. And obviously, they're in the very beginning stage. They just got the parcel of land and... It's kind of at an intersection. It's not far from a highway. It seems to be a pretty good spot. I imagine a lot of redevelopment is going to go into it. I imagine it's going to be a long time coming because you have to get all sorts of approvals and you got to have a bunch of different plans. And if you got to move roadways and you got to handle all that and nothing's even saying it's going to be a stadium. I mean, for all we know, you could just slap some mixed use housing there where you have like shops and whatnot on the bottom and then actual housing on top of it. That's a possibility. It could be that and the stadium. It could be a lot of different things. Uh, if you go to the particular plot of land, it's, I believe, like 10th and Cliff is where it is. If you're familiar with the area, if you're not familiar, show notes. Uh, I believe it's the bottom link from the Sioux Falls Business Journal. Uh, that's the one, not from the team itself, although both links are there. If you go there, it shows you whereabouts it is. And if you notice when you look on a map, there's a McDonald's that kind of juts into the middle of the property, which I wouldn't be terribly surprised to see something worked out where either that property is just acquired by the city or it's kind of like a trade-off deal where it's like, okay, we'll give you a different plot of land, but we want this little bit because we really don't want this McDonald's here because it's kind of 
messing with the vibe of what we're going for. Um, yeah. So, like, I could see a lot of things here, but really the important thing and the reason why we bring it up is Sioux Falls, the Canaries themselves, really are pushing hard, it seems like, in the very early stages to try and build up a lot of support among people that follow the team, among locals, to getting a new stadium built. And when you have a stadium that is 82 years old, it's, you know, you don't want to have to put a bunch of work in, even though you've already started putting some work in there. You know, it's a lot easier to try and get the, the local government to build you a stadium and then you become an anchor tenant than it is for you to keep putting your own money into a decrepit and really old stadium. And I, I have some other ideas and reasons why you'd want that at Sioux Falls, especially as new ownership in True North, uh, that that being the company that owns it, I have some ideas as to why they would want it. But uh, before I, I go off on that, I well, I'm going to let you talk because I've talked way too long. I think, the, I think the only thing I would add is just the fact that, one, this is a start of a really long process, even if, uh, even if the Canaries end up getting what they want. Now, it makes a lot of sense because, as you mentioned, Nick, uh, the, the Birdcage, they, they need a new stadium. Um, and the Birdcage, look, we all love the Birdcage. It has a fun name. I mean, who doesn't love the Birdcage? But yeah. it's, it's incredibly old. Uh, and... It definitely needs a. Uh, it definitely needs a facelift. It needs the Canaries need a new stadium. Um, and we've seen this kind of thing before with like soccer stadiums and baseball stadiums and trying to combine the two in some way. So I think it's important to remember after all this. It's it's such it's such a long process. It's such a long way away. But on the surface, I would say that it makes a lot of sense and that. Um, it certainly fits a need for what the Canaries need, uh, and w- with the locals. And you're trying to, and you're right in the sense that you're trying to drum up support because if you don't have the support of the taxpayers, it is really hard to get uh, a independent league stadium, a minor league, or not even just independent indie ball minor league stadium built in a particular town. Period. So, uh, so. So that's certainly important as well, but I think it's—I mean—it's a little too early, I think, in the, in the process here to really draw any major conclusions. But I, I do think at least there is an avenue there for the Canaries to have a new stadium built. Whether it actually happens, I don't know, but the, at least like there's an avenue. You sort of see—you sort of see like the vision a little bit uh but still definitely a long way to go in that process yeah i'd agree with that entirely but the other part of it that i want to bring up is it could be also like a saint paul situation where they got their brand new ballpark and what was it 2015 ish and immediately what what kind of became like the, the thing going around like oh well look at this ballpark look at the way this team's ran they would be a great affiliated minor league team and then what happened five years later? They became an affiliated minor league team. And so if you put in a brand new ballpark, let's just say for the sake of argument, this thing, you sort out what you want to do with the property. It takes two years to build it. and Everything all said and done. It gets built around 2020, anywhere from 2026 to 2028. Let's go 2028 on the long term on it. I don't know. I don't exactly recall how long each partnership agreement was between the teams and major league clubs. For whatever reason, 10 years is what was in my head. So let's just say for the sake of argument, even I'm wrong, and it's say 15 years. Okay. 
So 15 years signed in 2020 is bringing you to the end of the 2035 season. That means seven more years, which allows you from pretty much now when the Canaries got taken over in 22, that gives you basically 13 years to really kind of build your act together, figure out your ballpark for seven years in this brand new one. It would be seven years of getting the ballpark together, figuring out what works, what doesn't work, all this kind of jazz. Partnership window opens again. And now if you're the Twins, you say, well, we'll keep St. Paul as the AAA affiliate. And if we could go ahead and put our AA affiliate in South Dakota right there, why hell, that's a pretty tempting offer, ain't it? And being that we're yeah. they're currently in one of our partner leagues and we basically can look at whatever we want and we could really get into the nitty gritty on this and we've been able to kind of unofficially officially talk about this for a couple years leading up to it. And at that point, too, you figure add an extra seven years, City's able to kind of build up and redevelop the area around it so that we have kind of the outskirts of the brand new downtown. You're starting to become more of the heart of the brand new downtown. It just is a very tempting thing if you're the Minnesota Twins or even, say, a Detroit Lions or not Detroit, like Detroit Tigers. If you're a Detroit Tigers or a Minnesota Twins, something like that, it's very tempting. Even a Chicago-based team, you're not terribly far with the Sioux Falls right there. You're in a pretty good location for a lot of Major League clubs. And let's not forget that Major League Baseball is, I wouldn't necessarily say actively, but they're certainly not uh, going to be turning down any expansion teams. And would any of us be surprised there's an extra two new Major League Baseball teams in 2035? That means we're going to need new minor league affiliates. And if none of the teams that got cut last time around did any major work in regards to getting a new stadium done, but you have a Sioux Falls team that has a brand new stadium, maybe some other new stadiums popping up across the country, why hell, there's a lot of really tempting options out there, isn't there? Especially if you have a team in more of a Midwest region, like say a Nashville and say Charlotte. Why if you're Charlotte, that's not terribly far from High Point or Gastonia now, is it? And if you put a team in Nashville, you could grab a couple of affiliates in either Tennessee or the surrounding states. And those teams that have that currently own those affiliates are going to need to find a new uh, a new team to make a deal with. And Sioux Falls, we have a brand new ballpark. It's very tempting. So that's all a very long way of saying if you have a brand new ballpark that gets done a couple years before, you know, these that partnership window opens again or that affiliated window opens again. You can go into market and be, uh, well, the prime, uh, the prime pig. So you know, I I wouldn't be shocked if that's part of the reason that they're pushing for it, especially when it's a brand new ownership group that doesn't yeah. really have any real af affinity for independent ball or the American Association themselves, even if there there's nothing that either grouping could do. You know, like. It's just at the end of the day, if you're looking at it from a pure numbers perspective, affiliated is almost certainly better because your two major expenses are covered and all it's going to cost you is like a cut of your revenue. But there's a lot of just public perception and public marketing that works better on an affiliate level. And we can't be, you know, blind to that. So I wouldn't be shocked if that's part of it. I'm not going to say that's entirely it. Brand new ballpark when you have one that's, you know, old enough to be most people's grandfather is, you know, uh, there's something to it, especially when it doesn't have the same kind of history and cloud as a lot of these other ones do. But, you know, I wouldn't be shocked about that. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be shocked about it either. 
And I think you bring up a good point in particular about the ownership group, where at the end of the day, that ownership group does not have any loyalty to the American Association or Independent League Baseball. So uh, they what they care about is trying to is one, of course, the team and two, the, the surrounding community of, of Sioux Falls. And you're right, that would become a, a very uh, attractive market. And say, if you want to keep with the whole Minnesota idea, uh, as far as, you know, as far as double A is concerned, it, it makes it a little difficult as far as the as far as the leagues are concerned, because uh, I believe Wichita is their current one. And that's yeah. in the Southern League or the, the Texas League or something like that. Hmm. So it might be more of a Midwest League affiliate fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so that's the only as the only part of it that, that I guess you, you'd have to consider is where would that realistically fit. However, I don't think there's any doubt if there would if that opportunity were to present itself, I think that would be one of the more attractive options that Sioux Falls that the city that the city could do with that land. So I yeah, I think look developing story, but um, I think the affiliated uh, intrigue and allure is not something that should be discounted at all yeah it's just it's something that i think really is is worth looking at because when you start really like when you start looking at like okay where would a team go and then you start looking around there's a lot of brand new ballparks that make sense and i just i could see that being one of them and you mentioned like the league fit the only thing i would say to counter that necessarily would be Obviously, major league clubs don't really have, and I, I may be a bit harsh on it, but I'll just kind of state it bluntly. They don't really have any respect for minor league baseball. They see them as an ends to a mean. And, you know, if they can go ahead and get by, great. But if, you know, they have to go ahead and let them die, then that's just the way business has to be done. There's there's casualties in war is the way they kind of view it. And so, yeah. you know, if they have to just completely restructure the minor leagues again and just kind of tell them, hey, figure it out. I don't really care if you just lost your rival. I don't really care if you just added travel on there. Just figure it out. We want the brand new ballpark. We want the amenities. Make it work. You know, I if they if that was the decision, I again would not be surprised. I mean, what have we seen over the last like five years from Major League Baseball to make them, you know, to make us believe that they would operate in any other way? You know, yeah, zero. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly how they'll act. Their, their complete mo- uh, oper- operating uh, directive has been screw you. I got mine, and I'm going to continue to get mine. So like, and I, let's be real too. At the end of the day. If the only thing that was holding up was an increased travel budget, and let's just say that travel budget is an extra, I don't know, 20, 30 grand a year. If it meant the difference between getting their way and not, they can write a check for an extra 20, 30 grand and they'll screw something else down the line. For 30 grand yeah. to get the brand new ballpark with a better setup and an opportunity to really benefit themselves in the future, especially if you have a group that's, you know, you trust a lot in the baseball operations department and they come to you and go, this would be a good environment for developing our players, i.e. developing star players that we can market and then make some money off of and we can win with these guys, which will make us even more money. If you get the right guy to pitch it 
for 30 grand that's a business expense dude that's all that 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 isn't nothing so you know obviously i don't know the exact yeah. uh, numbers but I, I like i said i think that if like just figure out the baseball part of it's the hold up that's not a hold up at all i think it's more or less is that something sioux falls wants and i don't know if the answer is yes or no but i mean it's anyone's guess yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think the, the travel budget ultimately would not really hold them back. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting to watch. And uh, and if that if affiliated or maybe I mean the American Association is still certainly on the table there as well, just building a new ballpark and keeping everything else the same still on the table. So I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to see. Absolutely there. And so with that. We do still have the Frontier League's Eastern Division review. I assume you still got an hour of driving. Um, uh, hour and 17 minutes. I mean, hey, if you want, we can make it two episodes. All right. That's I mean, like, out there. Or a marathon episode. They're all good options. I mean, really, like, here's what I'm thinking. I think we just go ahead and we record it now, and then uh, we figure it out later on if we want to cut it or if we want to, uh, you know, just make it one giant thing. If you got the time, I mean, we might as well just keep going, right? I mean, hey, I'm 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 just driving. So, hey, hour and seventeen minutes. I think that that's plenty of time for a for a division recap. Yeah, I think we can get it done. And Frontier we're League on, is on a roll. Yeah, let's let's let it run. So, uh, yeah, pretty much the same deal as the last time around. Where we're gonna go over the the East Division of the Frontier League, like we went over the West Division of the Frontier League. Uh, I went back and I listened again to the the previews on all of them. We have all eight teams here. We're going to go in the order it was recorded. It's episode 166. If you want to go back and listen to that, uh, timestamps are in the description of that one. If you want to cut to a particular team, as far as here, I'm going to make you scroll to find it, but it will be in the same order. So it's going to go Sussex County, then Empire State, then New Jersey, then New York, then Ottawa, then Quebec, then Three Rivers, and then Tri-City. Then we're going to go back over our predictions and then go ahead and give our three or four burning questions at the end. That's how we operate around mm -hmm. here. And so with that, uh, I think we could probably just dive on in on this so uh going into 2022 sussex county first one up uh they went 49 and 46 in 2021 in 2022 they were 54 and 41 so an improvement still missed the postseason in 21 and they would wind up missing in 22 of course but one thing that we had expected coming into the season was that they'd be a very good batting team, but their arm depth would be very questionable. We didn't see all too many. And of course, we recorded this like a couple days into the season when it came out because a lot of these leagues like to all go at the same time. Frontier, uh, Pioneer, and American Association are really all within a week of each other. So getting three you know, reviews or previews, I guess in that case, out. Uh, and that kind of a time period is kind of tough. So this was done a couple of things in. We mentioned Michael Media Villa, uh, but he was so-so at that point. And uh, overall, the general consensus we had about Sussex County was that they were a fringe playoff team, uh, but they were weaker on paper. Now, in the end, Sussex County would miss the postseason, but they'd only miss by about two games. Uh, so they, I'd say we were right that they were a fringe playoff team. But when you look at the team stats... Uh, how right were we? Uh, that is a that's a great question. But before we answer that question, uh, media thoughts will. Yeah, I think as far as Sussex County, there was definitely it's interesting, Nick. And I think I think you'd probably agree with this that 
at least from when you compare the rosters on paper of the 2021 and the 2022 team for Sussex, and obviously the, the, the 22 Sussex team had a lot better record. Neither made the playoffs, but the 22 team had a, had a lot better record by about, I believe, like five games, yeah. uh, if, if, I, if I'm doing the math correctly. Yep, but I think that the 21 team on paper was significantly more talented. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and it just, just did not uh, come to fruition. Not the Sussex County definitely made some improvements last year, but I think for me with them, it honestly just came down to consistency. And I know it's a, I know that's kind of a cliche term that people kind of say when there when there's nothing else to say, like oh you just got to be consistent. At times Sussex would be you would see the absolute best of Sussex where you're like wow this is a surefire playoff team, and then they'll drop eight in a row. Yeah, um, and that was just the problem in a division where it was, it was very difficult. Uh, it was, it was a tough, it was a tough division with a lot of really good teams. And, uh, and it, I think it was there. I think it honestly was their undoing in the end because the, the consistency just wasn't, just wasn't really there, even though they did make a lot of improvements, even though I'd argue their roster on paper. And again, that's why baseball is a fun sport because it's not played on paper. And sometimes the teams that are, that are, that are look, look good on paper. Don't perform at all. Uh, I just think the consistency and like they would show flashes and then they would just drop, they would go into the, the stretches where they drop, where they drop uh, like nine of 11 games or something along those lines. And they would kind of put themselves in a bad position and ultimately where they missed the playoffs by a couple of games. Yeah, I'd agree with that, too. I mean, that was kind of the story towards the end of the season. You know, they were keeping it competitive. They were keeping it competitive. And you could go back to a lot of those episodes, you know, go back to, like, the episodes in the 170s and 180s, and everything we'd always say about them was, like, they're right there, they're right in contention. And then at a certain point, they just kind of fell off the cliff and they took themselves out of the hunt. And it would be one thing if you were slumping, but other people were slumping with you or nobody was really taking that grasp and running with it. The problem was Tri-City finished with the same exact record as they did. Uh, They finished with the same five-game record too, and they were kind of neck and neck there. And the other issue was Ottawa got really hot. They finished nine and one in their last 10. They had a big winning streak prior to that. Quebec was always getting that one. And we're going to talk a lot about Quebec in a little bit. But the only other, the issue that then became was the Boulders won 12 in a row to finish the year. (laughs) Like there's a, there's a lot of credit there. And again, we're going to talk about all these teams later on, but like, when you have teams that got really hot at the end and then you started slumping and you had to bring her back to 500 baseball to finish off the year, that's just not going to work. And I mean, in the case of like Tri-City, again, they were like a second half team, slow start, then they picked it up later on. And of course, the problem with that is you have to play catch up. And if you're not caught up on the midway mark, you know, you got a major issue. And in the case of Sussex County, that slump came in the second half. And, you know, a second ago, I said, we thought they were going to be good batting, but questionable pitching. They're a bad batting team, too. They were at best league average and on base and things of that sort. But then they would go out and hit 160 as a team. And that's just not going to produce much. They didn't hit a lot of home runs either. But from a pitching perspective, third best, the third fewest runs allowed. 
Hell, they were three runs off from being second fewest for whatever that will count for. They were the fourth best for ERA with a 412, so not that far off. I mean, Quebec, again, was a half run better than the next closest team. But if you put it, you know, to that second comparable team, which is Evansville, they were only po- about 0.2 off, a little under that. So n- n- a, f- what, a fifth of a run difference in, in a granular, significantly fewer amount of innings pitched, 28 fewer innings. But even still, they were a solid pitching team. They were a, an upper quadrant pitching team. So, you know, that, that really is what kept them alive. But the problem with pitching, and I think this is something that, especially if you go back and listen to that 166, we really favored teams that we were like, Ooh, this is a good pitching team. And one thing that I'm, at least for me, that I'm coming to realize, and I should have realized more, and it kind of goes back to one thing I remember, like, one teacher in high school that was a big Met fan, so we talked baseball a lot, would say, was, you can't win a ball game without scoring runs. It's very obvious, but it's like, you, you have to score at least one run to win the game. So if you're a fantastic pitching team, sooner or later, you're going to allow a run. And if you're a terrible batting team, you're more likely to allow a run because a pitcher just had one bad pitch out of about 75, 85, 95 that he threw that winds up taking that bad pitch, a batter takes that bad pitch and sends it 400 yards deep or 400 feet deep. And now it's one nothing. And if your offense can't find that other run, that's tough because it's a lot easier to not get a hit than it is to allow a hit as contradicting as I may say you could be the best pitching team and still lose and I think that's the case here in Sussex it's just they didn't get the hits when they got the pitching and then when they didn't get the pitching they still didn't get the hits and they were able to kind of piece together they were a good enough team to be seven games above 500 but in the end if you don't get the pitching or you don't get the batting rather uh, it doesn't matter if you're the fourth best pitching team in the league because at the end of the day, they average four runs against, so you need to average five runs for, and that didn't happen. Well, and I, I think the the uh, the traits of the the minors that you just described, Nick. What does that describe? That describes mm-hmm. a team that is that is very prone to be very streaky, yeah. and that's what they were. If there is a if there is a team out there that is consistently good pitching wise the entire season god bless them because that team then they then they've cracked the code of baseball yeah. uh because I, there is literally there is no way uh and you know the hope is that you, that your offense at least is going to be more consistent than uh than, than your pitching staff now of course you're, you need a good pitching staff to help carry you but with those traits ultimately that uh, that falls under a team that is streaky its characteristics fit them and i think you know at the end of the day there is uh and i know we'll i assume we'll talk about this later when we get into like something i mean this is a sussex county a sussex county team with a lot of questions coming into coming into this season Uh, and i know we'll talk about that more later but they are one of the more fascinating teams i think coming into this season Oh, absolutely there. And I mean, like, especially when you start getting into the weeds on it and seeing how many guys they're losing. And obviously there's a reason for that. And I'd love to do like either a video or a piece on just that kind of exodus and what that means and everything. And certainly we'll go over it when we get into the previews. Uh, but yeah, it's it's very interesting. And just kind of wrapping up on the minors for this year, when the bulk of your offense comes from Juan Silvario, who he played 94 games for him. And I just totally forgot. Like, I don't. 
because I still think of oh Valley Cat, but oh listed ninety four games, nearly every game with the Miners, uh, which is still kind of freaking me out here. But when your bulk of your offense is coming from Savario, Figueroa, Mikey Reynolds, and uh, David Mayberry, or Mayberry. That's not exactly a recipe for success in the long run. Jawan Harris is going to get some credit here for hitting 12 home runs too. But when you hit 250, you're kind of limited in your ability uh, there as well. And then you kind of go through and then there's a bunch of other guys. Like you have a guy like Alex Terrell who goes ahead, plays 34 games, hits 284. It's like not bad. Aaron uh, Errol Robinson, who every time I see him, I think Errol Flynn. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. He had a good year before he got picked up by the Cardinals. And then you kind of go into that. And those guys are doing your heavy lifting, and so you really need them to do a good job. And when they don't, then it kind of backfires on you. And also, let's let's be real with ourselves here. When you look at the starting pitching, too, it's really like three guys that are doing most of it, and that's Dwayne Marshall, who balled out, by the way, twenty starts over a hundred innings pitched, and he had a two sixty seven ERA. Vin Mazar was not particularly good. Michael Media Villa was pretty average. Uh, Connor Dand was very good, especially under the rookie two, which Marshall Dand and the guy we're about to talk about uh, in John Baker, all rookie two, so they should all be back if they weren't sent over to New Jersey. Uh, but Dand, th- three five six, and uh, Baker also at two sixty seven. Uh, Dand eighty one innings to uh, Baker's 104. Baker was more of kind of like a swing guy. Half of his appearances were out of the bullpen. So the point still remains. There was a couple of guys that were really doing well. And then there was a bunch of guys that weren't doing good. And so it really wasn't uh, like you had a lot of choices, a lot of options, a lot of availability there. And that's kind of where the the issues became. But yeah, like Rob Klimchuk was great out of the bullpen. Uh, Boints was good out of the bullpen. Um, and then you start looking and then you have guys that appeared in 15 or fewer games. And then that's a problem when you're appearing yeah. in 15 of 96 games. And I understand relievers aren't like an everyday dude. I understand they're like a two or three time a week dude. But even still, a bit of an issue when uh, you're going to Klimchuk in 34 of 96 games. It's a bit of an issue when, you know, Boynts is 24 of those games, and how many of these were overlap? Cody Witten, also good, 21 games. So, like, yeah, you can kind of see where I'm going with this. So, Tyler Thornton was also here for a little bit, too. Good for him. But, uh, yeah, with that said, uh, I think we kind of made our point about Sussex County. Good pitching team, fringe playoff team. So, we were a little bit off on really going to one thing, questionable another thing. But, in the end, the big picture we got right. Right. So we, go us. Exactly. So, like, I'm going to score that as a win for us. And on that note, uh, we said on, on paper things are different than they are in the field. That's not always true because we're about to talk about Empire State. And on paper, we said this was a very bad ball club. Did not play in 21, obviously. And as we said during that review, we said the one-year team Empire State grades, which also appears to be wrong as now they are a multi-year team in the Empire State grades. So we won't make the same mistake of calling them a one Uh, your team again um we said they'll be slightly better than the apollos were and that um they're bad their batting's gonna be bad but their pitching is gonna be horrific they don't have a hope at the postseason we were right in all that except for saying that they'd be slightly better than the apollos because if you notice i never said their record in 22 because their record in 22 was 6 and 90 
including a near historically long losing streak of what was it 32 or 34 games in a row and uh yeah. before they finally beat tri-city which you, you saw it coming because they almost won the day before and then they blew yeah. i don't want to say blew them out but they there was no doubt they won the game they won and uh I can't imagine that locker room was exactly fun. Not that I think Pete tore into them because it's baseball. Anyone can win on any given day. But when you have a team that's riding a 30-game loser, ah, oh man, you don't want to be the team that loses to them. That, that's just one of those you walk in there and it's very silent. It's very quiet because you don't need to speak because you just you know it's like we lost to them. And that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I, this, this is the Empire State was by far the worst traveling team that we've ever seen in the history of independent league baseball. It's certainly up there, uh, yeah. And I think it's got to be the worst. Like even even the different like teams that we've seen have not been six and ninety bad. Uh, and I don't, there's just not much to say. There's just no there's just no talent. There are guys moving in and out. I. Uh, it was just a train wreck and like even though uh you know even though you you had even though like you had a team like that was a set roster at the beginning of the year whatever it just they just were horrible they just won six out of 96 games like i don't know how else to phrase that uh we thought they were gonna be terrible they were terrible but they were more terrible than we thought they were going to be. So that's about all I think you can say. We managed to somehow overestimate the Empire State Grays. It's really the best way of phrasing it. And I don't think right. either one of us ever thought that was going to be possible. And maybe we were being a little overly optimistic. Maybe the mental frame we were when we discussed them in detail in the preview was let's take the optimistic side of this. Maybe they go ahead and in 96 games, they wind up winning 20 of them. Let's, let's be optimistic about it. You know, they'll be bad. They'll be significantly worse than the worst permanent team, but they won't be that bad. Maybe that was our thought process. Probably, but I guess so. We, we really thought double-digit wins was going to be kind of achieved. Granted, I think we both could confidently say we didn't think they were getting the double digits before, like, middle to end of July, the best-case scenario. But, you know, I think we all really did think they were going to get to at least 10. We at least thought 10 and 86. And even then, I think if you went back to like May and you're like, this team's not even going to win nine games. I think we would have even said like, I don't know. Like you got to be pretty bad to not even just accidentally fall into a win every two weeks. Like that's the thing that gets me. is like they felt like because you play what half of May, June, July, August, not really September. So like was that wind up working out to be. Uh, four, eight, twelve, about fourteen weeks. They won a game every fourteen days. Like you would just kind of assume you fall like ass backwards into a win every ten days, every week, even. Like I, that's what gets me. And like the thing is too. Like I look at this, and I think we did this at the end of the year too. But like Trey Woosley was not bad for a rookie, rookie first baseman, seven home runs, and he hit. Nearly 270. Now, granted, his on base is under 300. It's only 0.03 higher than his batting average. So, I mean, make of that what you will. It tells me he strikes out a lot. But uh, even still, like, there's something there. Jose Mercado wasn't 
god awful. He stole 23 bases and he did something productive. Jordan Holman Scott, he was all right. Uh, there's a couple guys like Manny Garcia. He had double-digit home runs. That's not terrible. And considering the team that was in front of some of these pitchers, like Connor McGuire and uh, oh, Johnson Aries, those were decent pitchers. They had like ERA slightly above seven, and I can't believe I'm saying that slightly above seven is a decent ERA after I just burned like some minor pitchers for having an ERA around five. But they at least yeah. had a real team in front of them. These guys, I mean, they were... They were thrown to the wolves, really. I mean, thankfully, uh, Holden Bernard managed to get out of there after 16 innings in a sub-2 ERA, and I don't understand how the hell he managed that, but good for him. Um, but yeah, like there were some redeemable pieces, but as a team, this was just a clunker, and I, I'm honest to God terrified of what's going to be rolled out there in 23. I hope it's better yeah. with Mark Mason there now, and him bringing in some York guys, it got to be better. But, I mean... I've still got him pegged for under 30 wins because it's at the end of the day, it's Empire State and I haven't seen enough. So, yeah. Agreed. Or I think we're best just moving on to New Jersey now uh, because I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything nice we could really say about this team that we haven't said. Right. I, I 100% agree. All right. So we'll go on to the New Jersey Jackals and what would wind up being their last year in Yogi Berra Stadium. They went 40 five and 49 uh the previous year in 21 they were 39 and 56 so an improvement a notable improvement six game improvement uh on the season they missed the postseason 21 again they would miss in 22 uh, of course we had them uh being a weak pitching team with some good vets but little uh, little improvement elsewhere not a particularly deep team i will give myself credit though because i said dalton combs could be a guy who really does improve this year uh, and he did, but the kind of thing where we were like, <clears throat> the thing we kind of kept coming back to was Alfredo Marte and Santiago Chirino are going to have to carry this team, and pitching-wise, there really isn't too much here. And, uh, well, yeah, when you're not a good team, there really isn't much there. And in the case of the uh, the Jackals, while they didn't finish 56 games out of a playoff or out of first place like the, like the Grays did, they were still 16 games out from that and about, oh, Oh, about uh, ten and a half games out of a playoff spot. So they still weren't exactly killing the game. They weren't exactly good at pitching either. Uh, by that, I mean they finished third from the bottom with an ERA as a team of six. And removing the Grays from everything here, because I think that's the only fair thing to do. Uh, they were second worst, only two of three rivers, which I'm going to have to eat some crow on later on. Or I guess in this case, eat some eagle on later on. But uh, yeah, overall as a unit, not particularly great. They weren't really killing it, but they did hit well. So again, we really got to question what we know and don't know. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I, I think I think we want. I think that we chalk that up as another W for us. <laughs> We're uh, killing the East so far, aren't we? We are killing the East so far. Um, and I have to say, like, I, it, it, I think the Jackals. And listen, there's a, a lot of respect for a lot of people that that were there, but um, and they had a great run, of course, in the Can-Am League. Um, but they have not made. On the field, they have not made a very successful transition to the Frontier League at this point, um, mm. and it has been a, it has been a struggle for them. So um, I think they were a team that proved that they were in need of a reboot, a reboot, a refresh. I think that's exactly what they, what they got with Bobby Jones. Obviously not in the dugout, but he's calling the shots. 
Yeah. Uh, and PJ Phillips is a fantastic manager too. Like, let's not discredit yes. that. He's very, very good. And he's proved at both the Pacific Association and Atlantic League. He can win, especially when you give him a full toolbox to work with. So exactly, uh, he, exactly. this is a good spot for him. Yes. And uh, I mean, it's an organization that has won, but it just has not translated to the Frontier League. And it's been the similar problems on the pitching end of things where they just do not have the quality uh, of depth uh, as far as arms are concerned that will kind of push them towards contention. Because I think mean, like you said they were 45 and 49 as their final record. Yep. Uh, the problem is, though. Let's say if you take Empire State out of the equation, I mean, they're probably a team that's, I don't know, like 15 games under. So I'm not necessarily necessarily go 15 under, but I think I'm just going to quickly look back to last week when I have everything written down there. I think they're much more in line with like, uh, like probably more like a Windy City. Like they went 33 and 62. So I don't think they're 30 games under, but I think they're you know, more in line with that kind of quality of team. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah so I think until they can figure out uh, the pitching end of things and how to get quality arms in for an entire Frontier League season, it's it's going to be tough to compete in a division like this where, I mean, you have, you have some monsters in this division, and it's really every year uh, and the jackals just have not really been up to the challenge so far and it's 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 been close and they have a good core of veterans that they continue to stick with and then it's done has done a good job for them but you still on the pitching end of things it has continued to be rough so uh, they're gonna have to switch that they're gonna have to try and change that around with a new regime going into hinchcliffe and i think there's a pretty good shot that they do it because there is a really smart staff uh in place that that is gonna go along with that yeah, and they also now have the benefit of kind of picking through the bones of the miners and Bobby kind of taking the guys he wants. I mean, you look through the transaction yeah. page on the Frontier League website, and that that's very clear. There's a lot of trades where a lot of very valuable miners are now jackals, and I mean, there's reasons for that, certainly. But they have that, plus they have the guys that, you know, they took too. So I, I would agree with that, that there is a foundation here. And I don't even necessarily think that this is an indictment on the job Brooks carried it because Brooks still won them a championship in the Can-Am. But I just, like, I look at this year's team in particular, and the thing that I come to is they were a bad team with a lot of really good players. Because I'm looking at, like, the batting here. I Trev- think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, because, like, like, you have a Trevor Abrams. 77 games. He had an on-base mm-hmm. on nearly 380. He hit over 300. He had 11 home runs. Alfredo Marte, a former major leaguer. 83 games, hit about 300, on base about 350, hit 18 home runs, had 82 RBIs. Santiago Trino, he's good for batting 300. He did bat 300, 84 games, 87 games. Jason Agresti, a guy that's been around the block now for a little bit between the Jackals and the Boulders, 287, eight home runs, 50 RBIs. You're like a Justin Wiley. He's one of the several guys here that have 20 over 15 home runs. And over 70 RBIs. In his case, 20 home runs, 77 RBIs, and he batted over 300 on base of nearly 400. Another guy in the same boat batted 325, nearly on base of 400, hit 29 home runs with nearly 80 RBIs, ran over 100 strikeouts. But I mean, with the kind of power production, the numbers everywhere else, you could live with it. In just in Josh Rewalt, another guy there, Dalton Combs, the guy I mentioned earlier. He batted over 350 on base over 400, 14 home runs, and he walked a 
one fewer time than he struck out. So 48 to 49 there. And he had 77 RBIs. A lot of guys here are over that 80 hit threshold as well. So batting wise, there's a lot of guys here. And I mean, Yogi isn't the best place for pitching, I grant you. I mean, though some guys did well. But even still, like Angelo Baez worked out well. Um, Tavares doing no hitter. Granted, I mean, that's, you know, call it what it is. Uh, he, I mean, hell, he put up a, a lot of pitches in that no hitter, too. And it was impressive. But there's guys there, too. Uh, Gregorio is another guy there. There was pieces there. It just overall as a team, they just didn't really work out. And it's kind of like the inverse of the minors, where it's like, you get the pitching, but you won't get the hitting. And if you're not going to get the hitting, you can't win a 0-0 a zero, zero ball game. The flip side of that coin is you're not going to win a lot of like 10-9 ball games. That's just not how baseball works, you know. Most pitchers aren't going to flinch that much. And it's still a game where more often than not, you're not going to get on base. Even if you hit, you know, 400, that tells me that, you know, you only get on base, you only get a hit four out of every 10 times you step up to the plate. So that means the other six times you're making an out. That's good enough for two innings worth of outs. So, you know, you're still more likely to not score than score. So, you know, it's just one of those things where some guys just really raked and really mashed. And, you know, I understand like indie ball doesn't work like this because of just the nature of it. But this was the kind of team where I was really hoping on some level the Jacks will just say, screw it, we're going to go sell. And just sell like Dalton Combs, sell Josh Rewalt, sell you know as many guys as they could to other teams. That way we could have gotten like a legit playoff push. Because just imagine if you would have added like a Josh Rewalt, or better yet, like a Dalton Combs, I think would have fit Skylines a little bit better. Add Dalton Combs over to the Miners. I think they're a playoff team now, to be quite honest. He adds the bat that you missed. Now, granted... I don't think they're beating, you know, either team that wound up making the postseason over them. And I certainly don't think they're beating Quebec, but they could have made it. That's uh, that's all just sidetracked. More to the Jackals. A lot of really good individual performances that just didn't come together as a team. And at the end of the day, that's a problem when it's a team sport. I mean, the only thing I, 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 sh- I think I can add there is that We've known since the Jackals have come into the Frontier League that veterans and guys at the top of their, as far as production is not going to be an issue for them because they have such a solid core. You're Alfred, Mason Gresti, just to name a couple. Um, but it's just, well, how are you going to make the transition and find those younger guys that teams like Quebec have had no problem finding? Um, and yeah. teams like... and. Uh, and of course, I mean, teams like Ottawa had no problem finding in their first year in the Frontier League last year. So uh, that's where I think, you know, you know, Jones and Phillips uh, kind of running the show there is really going to help uh, because that's certainly the, the change that they uh, they need to get production from those rookies, from those guys with, with very little uh, professional experience because they, they, can, they have the veterans taken care of. Great. That's, I'm not understating how important that is because it is. But... Uh, at the same time, it's hard when, uh, when the vast majority of rookies that they're bringing in are not performing. And it's tough to win that way, and, and especially in the monster division that, that, the, that the Frontier League East is. Yeah, and I mean, the next team we're going to talk about, because I think we can kind of move to that next team now in the New York Boulders, they had a guy that's still technically rookie too that was a jackal in Chris Quitzer. 
And he balled out this year with 20 home runs, 96 RBIs, and batted over 300. And that's, I mean, obviously they didn't need too much batting help, but that's an example of a young guy that really performed. And you can kind of go through here. And I feel like the Boulders were the best version of the Jackals because they were also a dominant hitting team, best hitting team in the league, I think we could confidently say, as, you know, when you go over and you look at the hitting stats, they were the second best team average-wise. Jackals had them beat there, but it was only by five points, so it's not like it's this huge thing. They were better on base. They were better slugging. They had more home runs. Obviously, it comes with the slugging. They had way more walks, 410 walks. I believe that led the league in walks. Oh, no, they were fourth in the league in walks. My mistake. 442 walks in the minors. Can I let me just appreciate that? They weren't getting hits, but they were drawing with a lot of walks. Good for them. Uh, but, yeah, in any case, runs scored. They blew the competition out of the water. Like the second place team had 624 runs. That was the Valley Cats. We'll talk about them at the end. The Boulders, they had 707, nearly 80 yeah. more runs scored. That's that's the difference. That's why Tri City wound up being out of the postseason, despite being a very good offensive team. And the Boulders made it and hosted the wild card game. That's the difference right there. Those 80 runs. But regardless, if you want to go into the pitching even, well, let's go through some of the important pieces of the uh, of the boulders. And we'll go through the typical stuff I always go through in a second. Alex Mack started 15 games, rookie one. Andrew Hammond, rookie two, started 12 games. Danny Wachanski, rookie two. Obviously, we know Wachanski and what he's done. And he got a lot of bullpen work this year, too. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but whatever. July Sosa. Rookie one, started the wild card game, did not have a good start, but overall good year, 3.57, so not bad. I granted a lot of these things with the with the my with the boulders too. They don't really have a lot of dedicated stars. Robbie Rowland was and for the back pretty much was. He only had four bullpen reliefs uh, appearances, but even still. A lot of these guys are, you know, the rookies. That's that's the main point here. Kyle Mott. He only got in a couple of games, but he uh, he was also a rookie here. You look through Ryder Yackel, rookie one. Really, when you go through, it's easy to just point out the experienced guys. And that's Matt Leone, who was dominant on the bullpen, sub-2 ERA, only 15 innings pitched, though, so that's part of it. Robbie Rowland, real workhorse for him, 122 innings. Uh, Laertes Pena, and he just wasn't very good, 32 innings pitched out of the bullpen, nearly a 7 ERA. And Zach Schneider, who, again, experienced, got the most work out of the bullpen, 34 appearances, Four wins, four losses, four saves for him. 53 innings pitched, 323. Everyone else is either rookie one or rookie two. And that 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 goes to the point about the rookies as a whole. And obviously, we'll have a lot of other things to talk about with the boulders here. But the boulders, they kind of follow that same mold. Because if you know formerly Palisades Credit Union Ballpark, but now Clover Park, you know that it's a place where you can hit a lot of home runs because there's some short porches there. And really, just don't hit anything in the center field and you'll have yourself a, a good time. And if you're hitting at the center field, put it back far. It's an extra base hit. That's how that operates out there. And, you know, we came in expecting an improved team with plus bats. We expected a playoff contender. And, or I should say, well, you expected a playoff contender. I was very high on the Boulders. Yeah, I, I will admit I was wrong on this. I said they were a 500 team because boulders. that's what they are. I was like, they're about a six game under 500 team. They can't put it together. But obviously, I was wrong. And they were a very good team. You are right on the Boulders. I will give you that after they missed the postseason the year prior. They posted a wild card game. And as I was saying, 
they're what the Jackals could have been. They're arguably what the Jackals should have been. They got the handful of good pitching performances they needed. Obviously, when you have Danny Wachanski, who's, would you say he's a top four pitcher in this league, top five pitcher in the league? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, so when you have a top five pitcher, it helps out a lot. And then when you have a couple of guys out of the bullpen that you can reliably count on, okay, we're going to give him the ball. We could throw him 50 times, you know, 50 innings across a third of the season, and we'll be safe with him. When you have those kinds of guys and with that kind of offense, you know, you you feel comfortable. You feel confident in it. Yeah. And, you know, it's just one of those situations there. So I will give them that credit. And I think they did a lot of really good things this year. And I'm going to be very interested to see TJ Stanton as he continues to build this team, build out this roster, because uh, they were they were a surprisingly good team here. But I will say this much. You take out that 12-game winning streak, and it's a different story here, too. I mean, like, let's be real. If they're playing... Of those 12 games that they won in a row to end the year, let's say they're even just seven and five. You know, all of a sudden it's a different story. All They're 52 and what? 52 and uh, yeah, 43? Yeah, you can't take away the 12 game winning streak the same way you can't take away Sussex County's big losing streaks in the middle of the year, too. Fair enough. Like, obviously, I'm fair, fair enough to say, but also, how common are 12 game winning streaks, though, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, the art, the, 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 what makes, Baseball is such a beautiful game is uh, getting hot at the right time is sometimes the best possible skill that a team can have. Just ask the Schomburg Boomers. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, how fluky would it have been to have the Boulders or the Titans playing the uh, the Boomers? Would that have just been like the That's- most fluky thing? Yeah, that, that would be that would be fun. That would be that'd be all I'd be all for that, honestly. See, it I'd be for it just because it's a lot of really hot teams and you want like the hottest teams playing in the postseason i think maybe not necessarily the best because we had the whole regular season to see the best but we want the teams that are playing at their peak to go out in the postseason i think that's at least my opinion but yeah what what, talk more about the boulders for a bit before we shoot up north of the border the boulders more so are are in a kind of a unique spot when it comes to roster building just because for example, if you're the GM of the Boston Red Sox, you cannot build a team and not have a good offense. If you're the Red Sox and you don't have a good offense, your team's not going to be very good. And I think just because the dimensions of the ballpark and the way that it plays, because pitching is harder there, uh, it is harder at that ballpark. So I, I think that the lineup was perfectly built from Stan. A lot of left-handed power as well. Uh, that it was it was perfectly crafted, I think, for the for the situation that the uh, that the that the ballpark presents itself, and certain and and the pitching was was good enough uh, to make them a contender, and that's kind of how uh, how I was thinking of it. I think there's an offense that'll mash, and I think there's a pitching staff that'll be good enough, uh, and that's that ultimately what they were. They they were mediocre for a lot of the year. That's true. But they they got red hot down the stretch and a couple quality arms that really carried them. Um, and, of course, it all comes down to one game. And that, that one game obviously didn't go very well for them against Ottawa. But I, I think at the same time, though, like it was a pretty massive step forward for, for TJ Stan and the Boulders organization that, that I guess hasn't really seen a whole lot of success uh, in recent years. And I, I think that's... 
they're going, the Boulders have to be a team that's going to be in the top two or top three of the Frontier League in in runs scored every year, or else they're not going to be, or else they're not going to be contending in the division. So uh, I think they were perfectly built. They were a team that could really mash, uh, and and they they were they were a really good squad. And that hey, they got hot at the right time. They deserve a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I'd agree with that too. And I think we really saw like a TJ Stanton kind of footprint on this team as well. I mean, like when you look at those last few years in, in uh, Three Rivers with him, his teams could hit really well. And so you put a guy that yeah. can put together good offensive teams in a ballpark that's conducive to offense, you're going to like results. And so I, I'd like that. I'm just going to be very curious to see the pitching going forward because obviously, like, again, I could read through stats here, but amongst guys that were regulars in their lineup, meaning 70 or more games, they had one, two, three, four, five, six guys that hit 280 or better, five guys that hit 300 or better. And amongst home run hitters, 320 home run guys, 118 home run guy, and a 16 home run guy in Tucker Nathans, who only played in 47 games, mind you. So they had some really, really productive guys here. Chris Quitzer, yeah. David Vinsky, Jake McKenzie, uh, Max Smith. The list goes on. Gabriel Garcia, Giovanni Garibaldi. You know, the list kind of go on. Austin Dennis, you, point is, you can name guys. These guys could hit. And the... And when you have a lineup that is that deep, it helps everybody out because you uh, because you have that protection in the lineup, and you're going to see pitchers to hit because you you can't pitch around anybody the, the way maybe you could to a to a, a Sussex County team. I think is a perfect a yeah. perfect contrast to that, where you where pitchers can kind of game plan around. Hey, all we gotta do is get through two, three, four, maybe five in the lineup and you're so you're you're smooth sailing. You can't do that with the boulders. You're gonna have to throw strikes. And in uh where in a division where the pitching was suspect on some of the teams, like you're talking about Tri City in New Jersey and of course Empire State, uh that's it's a good fit. And that's why I think that offense was so successful. Absolutely. I, I have to agree with you there. And also let's also keep in mind there's a lot of just regular guys in that lineup. You had the majority of those guys playing 70 plus of the 96 games. So when you have like six to eight guys that are, you know, are going to be playing every day, you maybe give them a day off a week, maybe two days off every 10 days. You know, that's that's reliability there. And when you know they can go out and perform, too, that's an added bonus. And then you look at some of the depth pieces there that played in 40 or so games. That allows you to really mix and match and have a lot of faith in whatever guy you're going to run out there. And it makes it even harder to game plan around because as a pitcher, you go, it doesn't really matter who's up because, hey, it's not going to be fun regardless. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with that a lot. And I think New York's a very fun team to watch going forward. And I'm going to be interested to see how they play it out. And they certainly beat up on my preconceived notion this year of they're a 500 club. They're more than right. a 500 club now. That being said... I'm going to be curious to see if they can get those hot runs again. But uh, baseball's baseball, right? It's going to happen, and then, yep. it's, you know, anything could happen. On that note, we go north of the border. We got four teams left and some questions to go over after that. And then we'll be done with a marathon episode if we keep it all together. Or maybe this just gets splintered off into its own thing. Who knows? But Ottawa didn't play in 21, obviously. And so they got their first real season in 22, 56 and 39 in 22. 
good for them. We expect them to be a very good team from a starting pitching perspective. Maybe have some batting issues. Uh, Will, you were slightly higher on them, saying they're going to be slightly better than New York. I was high on them. Uh, we both agreed playoff contender. Uh, so overall, I, I'd say we nailed that one. They were more than a playoff contender. They they really gave the uh, the Capitals a scare in round two. They yeah. dismantled the boulders. And quite frankly, they were both, I think you could say, the hottest teams in the Frontier League when they met. And it, met, it, it resulted in a pretty good matchup there, to be honest. Yeah, it was a great matchup. And I think that uh, ultimately they were right up there with Quebec at the end and, you know, being one game away from the championship series. And uh, I think that, and I can't emphasize enough when I talk about Ottawa, how great of a job Bobby Brown did. Oh, absolutely. uh, with, With that squad. I mean, just the fact, and he was put in a really tough position where you're talking about Ottawa and it's kind of an unstable situation he's kind of coming into and uh, and that you can you can come up with all the excuses in the book that uh that they didn't have a team last year and you're totally building from scratch and he did a great job uh building a team that had depth a, t- uh, a, a team that a pop and roster uh, and, and, and really a lot of depth so I think Bobby Bobby Brown did a did a terrific job uh, with that team, and they were they were right up there at the top of the standings for the a vast majority of the season. Uh, and I think Brown deserves a lot of credit at the top for that. And hey, I mean, it, it ultimately didn't end up going their way in the postseason, but they got a big win over a big win over New York. I mean, they they crushed them in that one game playoff, and then. Again, I mean, they were they a couple bounces here and there uh, against Quebec from from being in the championship series, which is a, a great accomplishment for what the the adversity and the set of circumstances that that team is that that team was dealt going into last season. And I'm excited to see what's what more they have in store for the future. Absolutely, like this is a team that really I think surprised a lot of us. I think overall this is just a solidly built team. AJ Wright came out of seemingly nowhere as a rookie. 88 games, 12 home runs. He hit 277. Like the production out of a guy that we knew nothing of. Fantastic. Liam MacArthur, stand up and take a bow. 85 games. He didn't hit any home runs, but he hit 326. And he got himself that hell out of Empire State. So that deserve he saved his own self. Um, Jackie Urbaez really stepped up and became an actual threat batting and a fantastic fielder too. He hit 10 home runs, something I never thought he'd actually be able to do. And he nearly hit 300 too, and he drew some walks as well. Jacob Sanford, the real star of this team offensively, played almost every game, 22 home runs, on base of almost 400. All in all, solid there. And then you look at the pitching-wise. Zach Westcott kept him alive for parts of this season. Even though he started to struggle later on. But in the beginning, he was really, really good. Gavin Sonier wasn't really a starter. But out of the bullpen, he was fantastic. Evan Grills was great. Tyler Jardin was great. And everyone else just kind of fit in and did their job. Like, this is just a team of everybody did their job. Matt Valen, fantastic job. Kevin Escara. Fantastic job. 17 saves as a closer. You know, he, he did a great job there. Serrano, he looked very good, too, in his appearances. Only really working one inning at a time, but he came up when it mattered. It was just a lot of guys that I think the best way of putting it did their job. And, I mean, Tyrus Green's another guy. He's more of an experienced player, yeah. But batting 300 as a catcher, 
that provides some value right there. I mean, like that that that's a very very good addition there. And you look through the the starting nine, and there really isn't a weak batter. You look through the the uh, the pitching staff, and there isn't anyone that's really horrendously bad. And there really isn't anyone that's tre- tremendously great either. It's just a team of really solid, you know, tough to beat guys. And that's how you win baseball games. And that's just the model of this team. They were above average just about everywhere. They did their job. And that's what got them where they were. Yeah, exactly. And there, there just weren't, uh, there weren't a lot of weak links on that team. Uh, and you know, you mentioned you mentioned Westcott, who's been. I mean, he's been good for multiple years now, so it's not really a surprise. Uh, but I, I think that yeah, they're a team that the foundation is absolutely laid to to be a, a contender once again, and it'll, it'll be fun to see them construct their roster this year as well. Exactly. So with that, we got three more teams left. Let's push to the end here. Quebec, again, another didn't play in 20 because of the joint team venture. 62 and 34 in 22. At no point were we ever really like, oh, they may be in danger. It was just like, oh, they're doing what we expected because we expected a playoff lock, a lot of big names, huge bats, deep team on both sides of the ball, loads of weapons. These are all the notes I wrote down here. A very good rotation and bullpen. Um, I think it's fair to say we could probably ignore the stats here because they're all just going to back up what we said, which is this is a very good team. They're going to be a hard out, and they're going to fight like hell, and they're going to win a lot of games, and this is the only team that we can confidently say is a playoff lock. Right, and and they ended up being that, and it was... Uh, it, it was it was odd. like I remember those episodes from from the summer, Nick, where it was it was all ultimately like, oh my God, Quebec is four Quebec is four and six in the last ten. What the hell is going on? Yeah, uh, and, and that that'd be like the lead story in the Frontier League. So I, I think it just shows really, I mean, how strong of a team that and they they've been a powerhouse for for a decade now. Yeah, uh, but in can end league or not, but I mean, Scalabrini's done a great job there, uh, and I think that there's just a, a ton of depth, a ton of great arms, and what really impressed me the most is, uh, you know, despite the fact they kind of, they were the best team in the regular season uh, by, by quite a bit, it was, they were undisputed, that is a target on your back come postseason time. And we see, I mean, how many times do we see this in Major League Baseball with a team that, what, I mean, the, let's talk about the LA Dodgers who win like 100, freaking 108 games a season and they never get to the World Series. So uh, I, I think that it, they deserve a lot of credit because they, they had a very tough series against a really good Ottawa squad. They took their best punch. They faced adversity come to the end of the season. They ended up getting the win. And, of course, uh, that great championship series they had against Schomburg, too. So I think uh, that's what really impressed me is that it's not like they were a team that, that just ran through everybody come postseason time. They had to deal with their their adversity here and there, and they did a great job, uh, and they won a lot of tight battles, Like, and that's what championship teams do, and that's that's ultimately why they ended up taking it all. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's the that's the most impressive thing, like you said, Well, is that they had the knife to their throat a couple of times, especially against Ottawa, where you really are like, they're about to get knocked out. The best team is about to lose. And they just find a way, as though as some sort of cheesy 80s action movie, to just kick the bad guy off of them and just dispatch them. And it was incredible, the kind of effort there. And like I said, I, I could go over everything here, but you have... A Jeffrey Parra, who is his 32 home runs in 86 games. You have a bunch of other guys here. Like, I say, I think I'd safely say that we were pretty much right on just about everything here. The only two things is one, you had Josh McAdams as like your player of the year. He wound up only hitting 222 in a handful of games. So that wasn't. That great. Yeah, that was like the only misstep. Uh, that I think we. We kind of undersold, particularly me, I think, that we kind of undersold Miguel Cienfuegas. We were like, Cienfuegas, Peva, Austin, and like Huertes, these are like four really great arms. And they were. Austin was probably the lesser of them. But, you know, him and Huertes were basically the same guy. Although they were both very good through a lot of good innings. And Huertes was less of a starter's Marvel reliever. But Peva threw a 3.14 ERA, which on a lot of teams would be the best guy, and it's still a very good year. But then, you know, Miguel Cienfuegas turns around in 21 starts, 131 innings. He only loses two games, not that that's a great indicator, but he only allowed 26 earned runs across the whole year, only 26 walks across the whole year, 106 strikeouts, sub-2 ERA, five home runs against. You know, just minor stuff like that. You know, yeah, he's on. He's he's an unbelievable arm, and he showed it time and time again. Yeah, it's just it's kind of it just is crazy to me that if you take out Marshall Sill or Shill, if you take him out, no one had an ERA above six ninety nine. That was the next highest. Yeah, <laughs> like the, the, that'd be the best the best ERA on uh, Empire State. Yeah. You're not. You're honestly not wrong, but yeah, I, I we could continue to go around and around on on Quebec, but I mean, as far as dominance goes, as far as quality of team, I think they are by far the, the best this year. So with that, um, we can go to uh, Trois Rivières or Three Rivers, uh, however you prefer to say. At any point, they didn't play in 21. They played in 22, almost an identical record to the Jackals, 45 and 50. In 22, uh, the expectation was the batters were going to be very good. There was pitching concerns, high-powered offense, but the arms must perform. That was the thing that it really came down to. And I was very, very high on this team. I was like, the bats are going to carry them. The arms will come through enough. They'll be a playoff team. I'm sure of it. And I felt like Charles Barkley, where I could guarantee it. Guaranteed. And like Charles guarantees, it didn't quite happen. But, well, you were pretty spot on where you were like, I don't trust those arms. They're a borderline playoff team. And the only thing is they really weren't even borderline because they weren't very good uh, overall. And, uh, yeah, we could dive into that a little bit now, can't we? Yeah, look, I think the just the arms are just – there's not many reliable arms. I mean, I'm, I, I think that uh, – as a, a team ERA, I'm pretty sure they were like over six and a half. I it's that is, that's going to be tough to win many baseball games that way uh, against the the tough lineups that they're facing. And yeah, the the pitching it, it's really sometimes you just you don't have to make it you don't have to um, make it more complicated uh, than it is. The, the pitching just wasn't good, and it was. Then I'm not even talking about just they weren't good. I mean, they were 
bottom two, bottom three pitching staff in the league. And if you're if you're down there, your offense better be pretty friggin' incredible to to back that up. I mean, you look at you look at the Boulders who have the best offense in the league by far, and uh, and ultimately, like if their pitching staff was what uh, Three Rivers was, they would not have been close to a playoff team. So I think that it's it's really just not more complicated than the arms just were not good enough uh, for Three Rivers, and that's that's something they're going to have to improve come this offseason. Yeah, uh, this is where earlier I said I was going to have to eat some crow or rather eagle that this is exactly it. I, I think I was guilty of exactly that. I really thought the bats were going to carry them. I thought they were going to kind of be, and I guess I thought they were going to be what the Jackals wound up being, only I thought that the pitching was going to be good enough. But the problem, of course, is when you take out Tucker Smith, who threw less than 33 innings, no one has a sub-3 ERA. And as a team, they have, well, I mean, Juan Santana did, but he threw four innings. That doesn't count. Um, and you were right. They had a 6-5-6, six, six, and that is the worst. Of course, that's assuming we take out the Grays, and if we take out the Grays again, then they threw the fewest innings, too. And I, I was really thinking someone was going to step up, but Heinrich didn't step up. He didn't pitch enough. Uh, really, only three starters really pitched enough. That's Osman Gutierrez, an experienced guy, above five. Uh, SBS, uh, Sam Bellier, uh, Springer, not good enough over seven. Uh, Sam Poliquin, not good enough. Uh, Matt Rush's team as a guy that was an eagle for a long time and a very good eagle pitcher for a long time just did not ha- inhabit anything like that. And looking at the batting, too, um, it just wasn't good enough. Carlos Martinez was very good. He hit over 330. Um, he hit 16 home runs, too. Um, and Steve Brown was pretty solid. Connor Panis, he had some power. Juan Kelly was Juan Kelly. Juan Santana was also solid. He pretty much put up good numbers across the board. LP Peltier had a career year. And, and Rafael Gaudu, he uh, also, he was his usual self. All these guys, you know, high average hitters. Some of them put up some really strong power numbers as well. They got on base, but yeah, they just, they didn't, they didn't do enough as a team. So, I mean, like, I can't really add on to anything more than what you said. Well, I mean, I could go and find the stats to back up what you said. But I mean, at the end of the day, they just... They, they screwed themselves. They shot themselves in the foot because they were just unable to pitch correctly. And, yeah. Uh, the, arms, the arms just weren't good enough. And uh, and I, I know I sound like a broken record, and I guess it, it it's kind of ironic that this, while you know, we're talking about the, the Frontier League East division, it's a really good division. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great lineups. Uh, and you, you got to have – and no one's saying that you got to be – like there, there, there's a reason that the uh, the best pitching staffs in the league, obviously Quebec is kind of in a class of their own, but yeah. like for the most part, that the the better offenses were in the East and the better pitching staffs were in the West. There's a reason for that, uh, and the Three Rivers just did not have the talent, did not, and and if they thought they had the talent, whatever talent they thought they had, just did not execute. Exactly. That's the exact way to put it. And on that note, we'll go to the final team we have, uh, the Tri-City Valley Cats, 50-46-21. and 46 and 21. We don't need to rehash why uh, they missed the postseason, uh, but they did improve by about four games, 54-41-22. and 41 in 22. They, they were expected to be a well-rounded team, good bullpen, good rotation, solid bats. Depth carries into the postseason was the expectation, uh, but like these other teams and like we've been saying and like... 
you know, the broken record will says we sound like they weren't a good pitching team. Third worst, again, removing Empire State. Uh, 584 team ERA. Uh, and they had their, what's becoming a trend of a slow start. And when you have a slow start, uh, you have to really overcome an awful lot. They weren't able to do that. Obviously, they had some really good guys. They had some guys that really performed. Kumar Rocker, that news had just came out the day we recorded the preview. So that was kind of fun. We got lucky on that one. And uh, he made somewhat of an impact, but not really enough. I mean, he re- never really was going to be that guy for them. Uh, but in the end, a same boat, really. They weren't good enough batting to overcome the pitching. And the only team that really has a very good argument for being good enough batting to overcome the pitching is the Boulders, who are the only team with yeah. a five or greater ERA to uh, to overcome it. Right. And this is something that I think Tri-City, they're, they're, they've been better than the Jackals, but I think they're, they're similar in the sense of Pete and Cavillia has brought in a lot of great veterans and he knows how to bring in, in veterans. And just right now, the, just the, the, the arms just haven't been there the first, the first two years. And it results, and listen, they're a good roster. They're a good team. It's just not enough to make the playoffs uh, against against some of the, the really talented teams in the East. And the, the pitching staff and not getting enough uh, production from the rookies on the pitching staff and, and ends up really uh, really hurting a team like Tri-City. So, and they, they, there's championship aspirations there. There is. Uh, and we've, of course, the interviews not too long ago with Pete Gavilia and, and Callahan as well. That's the ex- the expectation there, um, and it, it, it hasn't happened so far. They've had good teams, but the arms have really been a problem uh, for Tri City. But that also shouldn't take away for how good their offense. Uh, we could talk for hours about how amazing Brantley Bell is, and I could, you know, we could probably have a whole Brantley Bell podcast of us, uh, and I would probably be able to get back to Boston from where I am now. Yeah. So uh, I think they they have some really good talent, no doubt about it. Uh, but the, the pitching staff just just needs to get better. Yeah, I mean, like, you could just listen to our Pete and Cavillia interview, which is really fun to be able to say and plug, uh, to talk about the individual guys, and Brantley Bell in, especially there. I mean, guy hits nearly 370 and 24 home runs to go with it. I mean, that that's a solid year, plus tack on 32 stolen bases. I mean, that's that's a year that'll make anyone gush. Brad Zunica was a solid player for him. Cito Culver really kind of started to discover his bat again there once he went from Sussex to Tri-City. Dennis Phipps, I mean, he's obviously a veteran for this league, and he'd be doing fine in the Atlantic League even. But he really, really showed up. He really, really raked. I mean, over 30 home runs, 90 RBIs, everything there. Paven Park, same thing. He really made the jump from the Pioneer League to the Frontier League well. And he's going to be back next year for them. And I'd love to see him make another jump into, say, the American Association or Atlantic League, too, to see how he could adjust for that. Willie Garcia, for the limited playing time he had, was good. But the pitching, just to harp on it, one guy sub three, and that's Trey Cochrangill. Now, I love that the law firm was there. And again, he was trying to drag this team single-handedly in his 51 innings of relief work and 14 saves. He tried to drag them. Workhorse. Exactly. The, the, the poor man's breaking his back for him, and they just... They weren't able to do it. But if you remove Kamar Rocker and a couple of, you know, position players, 
Cochran are the best by far ERA on this team. The next best is Joey Gonzalez, by far their best starting pitcher. 116 innings, basically 117. 363 ERA, solid, solid. After that, there really isn't much. Abatello, I'm going to hope that's right. 21 innings over four. Next best guy. Adam Hoffick. Who, who, Nick? Who, who, had that? who had those stats? You know damn well who had those stats. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I do. Well, I'll go back. I'll cut you that cut audio and I'll head. slap it back on. You can listen to the episode. Give us a free download. <laughs> Adam Hoffick, though, he, he had a four and a half ERA, too. Brock Warren had a solid bit. And after them, they're all above five. Point that stands, that's not good enough. And it's just never going to be good enough to win. And so that's where that is. And that is every team in the Frontier League. That is how we saw each team in the Frontier League. And the only thing we have left to do is a couple of burning questions and playoff teams. Will, your playoff teams were Quebec, which you had making the final, uh, Tri-City, and Sussex County. I had Quebec, Tri-City, who I had making the final, and uh, Three Rivers. So... Overall, we were both uh, one for three. Tri-City was a whiff on both of us. Bigger whiff by me because I had him somehow beating Quebec. I don't even know. I must have been high or something to think that. And uh, we both kind of whiffed on the three. Again, mine was worse than Sussex County. Uh, And, yeah, so there's that. So that's how that worked. Uh, I assume... You got to be close to Long Island now, right? Well, I am on the island now. I'm, and and it is truly impressive that I that we picked this up. Uh, that we started recording this episode right after I got gas in Framingham, Massachusetts, about 20, 20 minutes outside of Boston, and I am now twelve minutes away from my house, uh, and right right like just a couple streets over from Hofstra and I'm currently on Long Island. It is very, very impressive. I'm you, on the LIE at the moment. It's, you know, it's, it's great stuff. I almost feel like I should change the name of the episode from silver standard to road tripping because this road tripping. Yeah. But you know, to avoid having you having to do this in your car, let's get through these questions and then plug stuff and get out of here. Because I'm, sure. you know, I think we've made this drive go by quicker. Now, of course, I've just been sitting in an office chair for the last two and a half hours. And you've been the one doing the driving. So really the heavy lifting on it. But I feel like this made it go by quicker. Oh, 100%. I mean, it's got, it's got to be locked in, focused, thinking about baseball instead of, wow, I have 170 more miles to drive in friggin' Connecticut. <laughs> I'm For a second, I thought you were still in Connecticut because, well, we all know no. how Connecticut could be. And if you were, I assume we would have been hearing small tangents. Nick, it, it's almost two. It's almost two. Uh, for, for anyone who's listening, it's, it is now currently 1.53 a.m. There is nobody on the road. Connecticut is a sentient traffic jam, William. We both know this. It will just At manifest traffic. In the morning? It will manifest traffic. We both know this. It just appears. It could be wide open. And no one has ever driven through Connecticut without hitting at least some traffic. I did not hit any traffic through Connecticut tonight. We need to get you a dash cam for your car so that way we could put that over the YouTube version. But That's right. I'll prove it. <laughs> but we got four other questions for you. The first of which is in 2022... Blank was the most disappointing Frontier League East team. Oh, Tri-City. E- that is easy money. Uh, I think that 
I think they're expected to be, all right, you know what, first year, first year, you can you can reasonably say, hey, they're still kind of getting used to the league, getting used to trying to get rookies and stuff like that. But year two, this is where they're going to start to turn it. Looked like they had a lot of talent on the roster. I mean, they did have a lot of talent on the roster. Uh, but, yeah, just what we talked about as far as the pitching, we're not going to rehash it, but yeah. – uh, Ultimately, I think I think they're an easy pick for most disappointing in the division. You know, I, I'm going to agree with you because I think they were by far the most disappointing. I will say, though, I'm going to pick uh, three rivers instead, though, just because I was riding really high on them. I shouldn't be because Tri-City via expectation, everything that you said and everything that pointed towards them, they should have been better off than they were. But I'm, I'm just going to say three hours to be different because I really believed in them. And they were a team I thought was a lock for a three seed, which again, I agree with what you said last week. We need to stop locking teams into the three seed. Um, but yeah, yeah. so I, I'll say that. I will say uh, three rivers to be different, but I, I really agree with a lot what you said with Tri-City. Uh, in 2022 though, Blank was the most surprising Frontier League East team. Are we both going to agree with Ottawa? I'm gonna say Ottawa. Yeah, I think Ottawa, I think Ottawa was definitely the choice for me. I mean, I, I mean, from your end, if you weren't high on the Boulders, I guess you could say the Boulders. But I, I think I Ottawa it. would be the one for me. Yeah, I, I suppose uh, for me though, like the Boulders too. They've always had that potential. I just kept doubting that they were gonna reach it because they really hadn't reached it in quite some time. With Ottawa, I don't think we really like we said playoff contender and whatnot. And you had them being slightly better than New York. I was really high on them to begin with. But even still, to meet it, it's still kind of surprising. Like, it's one of those where I feel like I was almost saying, it'd be really cool if this happens. So I'm going to really hope it happens. And I'm going to really hype them up for them. I'm going to gas them up because I want it to be a thing. But for them to really come through. And for me, the fact that they did that well in the postseason is what kind of puts them over the top over, say, a New York. Because I don't really think they had any business making it as close as they did against Quebec and really putting the fear of God into them. And they really did. Like, this is a team where next year, if you told me that they were going to be the Eastern Division's team in the final, I could reasonably see a path for that. I'd agree. All right, so question three here. Blank will be the most interesting team going into 2023 or was the most interesting team in 2022? Uh, so the most interesting team, going, I'm going to say the Jackals. Yeah. Uh, I think there's just so many storylines coming into the year with a new regime in there, a lot of brand new players on the roster. I, I think for, I think for me, it's, it's gotta be the Jackals. There's just so many, I think they're going to be a fascinating team to watch this year in a really, in a really big make or break year for the franchise. I mean, obviously there's a lot of stuff going on on the outside of and beyond just playing baseball, but, uh, but, but ultimately on the field, it's a really big year for them. I would agree with that too. I mean, I think you make a lot of good points. And again, I may sound a bit redundant here, but to prevent against picking the same thing you picked, even though it's a great pick, and again, I just mentioned them. Ottawa is my pick again because it was year one for them. It was really the first time they got to play at home. It was a bunch of really new stuff. Bobby Brown did a fantastic job. There was a lot of kind of surprise guys there. But as we know, consistency is very difficult in any ball. That's why when we find four or five guys that are like that, we really hammer home like this is a guy. This is a dog. This is the guy you want. This is the guy to watch. 
There's a reason why we constantly hammer those guys. And this was a team in Ottawa that wasn't the best pitching, but they got by on it. They got by on some really good batting performances. So I'm very interested in seeing in uh, in 23, are we going to go ahead and have this same uh, kind of performance? Are we going to get those same kind of guys that come out of nowhere and do it? Are they? Are we going to get those repeats? What's the boots on the ground reality for Ottawa going to be in 23? So I'm going to say Ottawa, although I think you make a lot of really good points about New Jersey. Yeah, I think I think both are going to be really interesting. I think I think both are good choices, I, and I think the fact of I think the storyline of is is Ottawa one year fluke or are they a legitimate contender that's going to stick for a few years in the East is a really important one too. Absolutely, there. And so with that, we have one question left, which is always kind of the bonus one, and I guess I kind of reverse the two of them if you want to get down to it, uh, which is just who is the most intriguing from twenty two. You know, we said what's going to be the most intriguing thing or best to preview for 23, but let's keep it on 22 for just one more second before we turn the page on the Frontier League for the next little bit. Who is the team in 22 that was the most interesting and most intriguing? Oh, most interesting team in the East Division in 2022. I mean, I, I honestly think that... No, no, I'm going to say the Boulders. I'm going to say, I'm going to say the Boulders were the most interesting team, uh, just because you know with with Stanton there and they were just, I mean they were an entertaining team for sure. They could hit the snot out of the baseball. Uh, so I, I would say the fact that they hadn't been to the playoffs in a few in quite a few seasons uh, and and had a lot of success. I think that it was uh, it was an important year for the Boulders this past year um and i think that uh i think they were the most intriguing team and interesting team looking back especially i mean how, i mean there's no, you don't get much more interesting than a wild goose chase at the end of the at the end of the year for those last two spots and you have the boulders coming out as the two seed because they won freaking 12 games in a row to end the season so i, I don't think it's much more interesting than that See, there's a couple ways I could take this. And like what you said about the boulders is certainly one way. You could say the same thing about Ottawa because of their crazy run. You could say Tri-City because they dug themselves a hole and they nearly managed to climb out of their own grave. And that's interesting. You could say the miners because they just kind of slowly started to fade. And you were like, are they going to have enough to get there? And then it's just the tide caught them. But I'm going to take it another direction. I'm going to say Empire State was the most intriguing and most interesting because of how bad they were and we genuinely thought at several Uh. points they bottomed out and then they just kept digging deeper and then we were like there's no way in hell you could bring this thing back and then they're like mark mason's our new manager running it back year two so like for me again i have to just focus on 22 to only win six of 96 games it's just like impressively bad. And so there was a couple of moments where I was genuinely invested. Are they going to pull this off or not? And like, I think we all kind of low key rooted for them to set the loss streak and then immediately get the win. But even still, they were interesting because they were just a storyline and not for the best way. So I'm going to say Empire State because I'm taking this in another direction. Okay. Yeah, I I think that's certainly, I think that's fair. They're they're very intriguing to say the least. Yeah. So, so I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. All right. And so on that note, 
Let's plug this show and get out of here because we've gone on for about two hours and 40 minutes at this point. Holy crap. <laughs> I honestly don't know if I should break this thing into two or if I should just leave and say, have fun with a three-hour episode. But we're going to find that out. I may put up a Twitter poll about this. Yeah, put up a, I was about to say, put, put up a Twitter poll. You can put a Twitter poll, Instagram poll, whatever you want. Yeah, I'm putting up a poll. Oh, on this. You guys are going to find out if this thing got cut into two or not when we find out if it gets cut into two or not. But with that said, the one place you'll be able to find out for certain is social media and all the things we're about to plug, which is to say you can find us on Twitter at IndieBallPod. You can find us on Instagram at ALPB underscore news and at IndieBallReport. Keep your weathered eye on both of those because we're going to post a bunch of polls and a bunch of stuff and everything that you need to know about weather 204 is going to wind up being 204 part one and two or if it's just going to be 204 and it's going to be pushing three hours long i'm going to warn you now as you probably already know if you got this far and we didn't cut it that being said you could also find every episode the show notes that we mentioned earlier as well as the article i kind of sort of teased and announced i guess uh earlier in the show on the website indiebarreport.com be sure to go there check everything out it's all available there and if you don't want to go there you don't want to go to twitter you don't want to go to instagram you could just find the show itself on just about every podcast platform which is TuneIn, it is stitcher it is spotify it is podbean it is apple podcasts it's google podcasts it is amazon music it is anywhere and everywhere you can find podcasts. And with that, and with that said, as we approach the two-hour and forty-five-minute mark, do we have anything else left to add in this behemoth of an episode and recording session? No, no Rutgers rant this week. I will save it for next week. Uh, all I gotta say is, if you listen to, if this is one episode and you listen to all of it, God bless you. Really, I you are, yeah, amazing. Yeah, it, like this would definitely set our record for longest episode, and it, it probably would do it by a, a clean fifteen minute mark. Like it would just hurdle this. It, it's this is a legendary one. This is this is one for the books of of a episode that we're recording in the middle of the night when I'm driving from Boston when I'm driving from Boston to Long Island, <laughs> and we managed to kill the entire length of the drive and possibly a little bit more. Nick, yeah. Nick, hold on. I'm going. I'm going to literally let you know the second I am turning onto my street. I'm going to wait until you play the point. I want to say we recorded the whole length of this drive because essentially that's I'm, what we did. I'm turning. Just got to back it up a little bit and straighten it out. Oh God, we just got to finish and the medicine a parking session. Are parked. Oh my there God. There it is. We have podcasted. We have podcasted the length of essentially Boston, Massachusetts, to Hempstead, Long Island. Un- that that is legendary. Right. Pardon my French. That's legendary shit. It absolutely like I feel almost obligated to put this out as one full episode now because it dulls the feet if it's done in two parts. And so if this thing comes out and it's like six o'clock at night, I want you to know what happened was I didn't we didn't finish recording till like ten after two. I wound up sleeping till like one, started editing it, and didn't get done until like five. So that would be the reason behind it. This is this is a historic feat. I'd say I have something to add, but quite frankly, after going on this long, I don't think we have anything else left to say. And until next week, 
uh, don't forget to play ball. <laughs>